You're listening to episode 164 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. You know what, guys? I've given it a lot of thought, and I think I'm going to put my foot down here. No more no more guests for 2019. We're done having guests on the show. No more. Oh, yeah? Well, uh, I hate to burst your bubble. <laughs> what? Why? <laughs> because we have a guest on today. Oh, no! Ooh. <laughs> and in fact, you heard everything you said, so that's a pretty bad first impression, I gotta oh, tell you. Oh, no! Tyler, this is so Tyler, we can ask Phil to leave if you'd like. Uh, you know, it depends. If he, if he doesn't want, it doesn't have any questions for any guests, he can just uh, sit there quietly, and we'll, the rest of us will discuss. <laughs> oh man! He told you what to do on your own show. If I could find a way to make Phil sit there quietly, yeah. you better believe I would. The lines have been drawn, I guess. Oh boy, this is awkward. <laughs> well, uh, Phil can sit back and and uh, be humble because we do have a guest on the show this week. Uh, one that we're actually really, really excited to speak to. Uh, we have a Wave Blue Worlds. Tyler Chin Tanner on with us. Hey. Uh, thank you so much hey, for thank joining you for us. Having me. Now, a Wave Blue World is is a a publisher that has been consistently putting out really strong titles, and uh, you as the you know sort of co co publisher co owner co publisher yeah co. Go everything, everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, it all kind of started with us. Yeah. Yeah, you've you've been you've been steering the ship, and uh, so we're gonna get into all of that. Uh, how how a wave blue world got started, and 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 everything else in just a moment. I do want to let you guys at home know where you can find the comics pals all over the internet. Uh, if you want to Google us, we are the Comics Pals. Will come up, uh, whatever podcast hosting platform it is that you want to listen to us on. We will be there for you guys. And if we're not, uh, yell at Mr. Marco Adamoto. <laughs> he will receive all complaints, not me. Uh, you can get us on social media at the Comics Pals. You can write to us at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. And of course, if you're on YouTube, hello. Uh, make sure that you guys are subscribing if you enjoy this content and want more of it, and that you are hitting the notification bell to make sure that you are made aware whenever we drop a new video of any kind, and of course, make sure that you guys are checking out our book clubs that are out right now. Secret Wars just dropped, and we've got Watchmen at the end of the month, so stay on the lookout for all of that cool stuff. Now, back to you, Tyler. Um, Hi. Uh, Mezzo is, is has been coming out. I had the opportunity to read it. I'm dying to talk to you about that, but Great. I want to give the the listeners who aren't as familiar with A Wave Blue World just the intro package to you guys. So you know, just just tell us how you how you got started. Well, when I made the shift to go into being a comic professional, I was a teacher for five years. Um, before going to the Kubert School. And I went there to sort of change fields, go into that professionally. Um, I knew that I was doing it because I wanted to get into independent comics and do my own thing. And one of the great things about going to a school, especially, you know, there's art schools, but then there's art schools that are specifically geared around the comic book industry. You know, you can learn animation, illustration there as well. As I learned a lot about the, uh, 
the industry and how it's done. And especially from Joe, I mean, I had Joe there and he's been in, you know, many facets of the industry. Um, I just really liked to see underneath the hood and how that worked. And I realized that not only did I want to create my own characters, but if I really wanted to play by my own rules, then I had to do it independently. Um, and so Wave the World really started as just sort of my own imprint. I actually founded the company between my second and third year at the Kubert School. So, I mean, I was really just sort of, wow. you know, just knew that was the direction I wanted to go into. So started putting up um, the the systems, putting those into place, you know, founded the company with my wife, Wendy, who's also an author. Um, she's an academic and uh, she's not, not so much into the comic book field. I mean, she read some as a kid as well, like me. I'm, um, ElfQuest and Dazzler and fun stuff like that. But um, just, she certainly appreciated the art and um, of, of, I mean, sort of the craft of making the comics. So yeah, we joined together doing that, um, making the company. And we I just started doing like one title, you know, Adrenaline took me the pretty much the first four years because like I said, I founded it before my final year art school. So three years out of school, that was just one title, you know, did the issues, collected into a book, did the same thing with my next graphic novel. Um, and, and that was like totally fine. Like this was cool doing it myself, my own thing. Uh, I, I, uh, and like, it was, I mean, I am a publisher, but that was almost like self-publishing. It was really the uh, anthologies that kind of ballooned things up a little bit and did the Broken Frontier anthology, All We Ever Wanted, um, Loved and Lost, Dead Beat just came out. And that and like Kickstarter, I think, because that helped me ex really expand my game a bit more. I was able to invest more in the front end um, and do more things like that. Um, but I started getting to know more of these creators. I'm not super like social. I think between development and social media and um, you know, things like that. I've, I've, my contacts have sort of just sort of increased, you know, a little bit. Um, whereas like before that, I mean, I, I mean, that's how I live my life. It really is just sort of at home, see people at conventions every once in a while or, or, or store. But anyway, that, that just sort of like, I don't know, I guess, I guess the feedback was people really dug that more people came up to me and was like, I want you to do my project. So it looks as good as everything else that you're putting out. Um, I think when Toby Cypress came to me with wanting to do his art, art book, it was like, now I, I love the quality, you know, that things come out in. Um, so yeah, I was like, all right. And then like earlier in the year, I was sort of like, all right, I think this has to go one way or the other, right? I need to either like, you know, go back to just doing my own thing in like a book or two a year, or we need to expand this thing and try to get like the book distribution. Like I got back into Diamond even, I wasn't even Diamond since Adrenaline. Um, just because it just wasn't selling well enough, it was easier to sell directly to stores, like sell to a smaller set of stores that I had direct contact with, rather than just put it in a catalog and hope people find that type thing. So got not only got back yeah. with um, Diamond Direct, but actually expanded enough to get book distribution. And so now we're doing that and laying in a whole new plan to do 10 books a year, which... I mean, it's a nice pace. It's only one book a month. I can put the focus into each project that I want to, but we've also like grown to a point like, oh, oh crap, all right. I'm a publisher. <laughs> We're publishers now, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it, I mean, it hasn't been difficult to find enough projects. I mean, we're booked out through 2021 already. I mean, we know what we're doing. And, wow. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like 10 books a year, but, it, you know, it's been so, it's been easy enough to find, we can, we get to be as choosy as we want. We get to give each project the time to develop. Like it's, even if it's something that I'm not doing, you know, just making sure the creators 
have the feedback and the resources they need to make their project the best that it can be. And we're going to, you know, put the uh, work on the production end and make sure the quality is there. And I'm just excited to, yeah, like, like you said, I appreciate you saying uh, at the top that you felt like we were putting out really good books each time that we did. And I just want to make sure we don't lose that at all, even though we're yeah. expanding. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm actually fascinated by your end of the, of the comic industry. We've, we've not had the opportunity yet to have a, a, a publisher on board, but what makes you even more fascinating is that you're also a creator and I'm very curious and speak to this as much as you can or, or want to what it's like to be in that position of, you know, sort of helping creators uh, see their ships, you know, uh, get, get off the dock and, and get out there into the world, but also working on your own titles and, and spending as much time as you can with those. What's that been like? I've really had to learn a lot about structuring my time. Um, kids help out with that too. Uh, you learn a lot of lessons that way, <laughs> but not try to make it this big jumble of mix of everything. You know, it's, you know, not as simple as just simply writing down a list of everything you need to do and kind of going through it because they take different mindsets, right? So you really try to piece out the day. When am I writing? When am I editing? When am I doing business stuff, you know, accounting and, and not just try to hop from one to the other. Um, if you can give yourself a little breather in between too, just to give your, your mind a chance to reset, like go out, take a walk or go get lunch or something like that and then come back and do it and to know ahead of time too like i really plan out my week you know you want to have like the daily schedule the weekly schedule it can get a little bit looser as you expand like the monthly schedule on that we're even in the like i said we're planning out the year so i mean like the yearly schedule um all that's really good put in a specific amount of times and tasks as you can um and uh you know i mean as a creator you know you're speaking to I think a lot of us get into it, you know, more loosely, like you just sort of write as things come to you or whenever, like pieces throughout the day. And that's still true. Like something will just come to me at dinner and shower, things like that. But um, to be able to say, hey, this is going to be my writing time, 9 a.m., get the kids to school, write till lunch, you know, whatever. Don't answer emails. Don't worry about somebody else messaging you about something or whatever. Um and work to, towards that because that's the only way that you can do it. You can't just sort of be like, well, I'll just sort of write as, as you know, kind of, you know, comes to you. I, th I think most professionals will probably tell you that. But, yeah, that's that's been the biggest uh, lesson. So is that kind of your sweet spot, that nine to, like, lunchtime? That, is that usually when you get the bulk of your writing done? Uh, yeah, I certainly try to. You know, it's a snow delay. You know, we'll, we'll kill that, though. You wake up in the morning, there's a little snow <laughs> on the ground, and your school's like, two-hour delay. You're like, okay, maybe this time wasn't the best. What does that look like for you, like, in the summer, like, when your kids are home? You know, it's actually somewhat easier in the summer because um, I don't even have to wait till nine. Je pr I prefer to like wake up and just do it right away. But of course, I, if to get a substantial amount of time, I'd have to be waking up at like 4.30 or 5, which I mean, I don't know. I mean, if I had to, that's what I'd do. Um, but in the summer, if they don't have school, a lot of times they have camp. So I am right back to that same schedule. But if okay. they don't, like if it's a weekend or whatever, and I feel like writing, I can actually get up at seven. And write more to like 10 or whatever. And they can just, you know, they're just old enough now that they can just have some breakfast. And, and I remember my wife's around too. Um, so I don't know. It's always chaotic. Like, I don't mean to make it sound like it's not 
constantly like, oh, well, what's today going to be like? It's a little different today and this and that. But um, yeah, you know, I just, like I said, you plan out by the week, the day, whatever that week looks like. If kids are in school, if they're in camp, or if it's just a free vacation week, you just say, all right, this is what I can do. Pencil in the times and hope that's that's how it actually works Hope out for the best. <laughs> yeah. So how how hands on are you with the creators who are publishing books through you? You know, in terms of giving them feedback, which you mentioned before. You know, making sure that everything is you know uh, as as quality as you guys need it to be. Any help that they might need. How 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 involved are you? Well, I usually, I mean, if something starts with a pitch and I like the pitch. You know, there can be just like a really, you know, simple opening discussion like, hey, you know, oh, I really like this idea, but have you thought about doing it this way or that way? And they could either be, you know, yes or no. Um, sometimes it, the, accepting the pitch could be contingent upon that just because I really, maybe there's just some concept of it I don't like or something that works better. But generally, I hope to find something that I just like where they want to go. And then so my job is really only to just to make sure um, they are able to make that the, the best, the fullest of what they want it to be. Um, so I'll have like a little discussion to start the pitch or start the process of the writing in the right direction. And then I usually like check in per issue, you know, if they have a script for, um, and then I almost become like a write uh, an editor, um, or I even have like an editor on some projects, but I'll also check in about that time too. Like maybe I'm not the one giving quite as much advice or or managing the deadlines, but I'll be like, oh, hey, script is in. Okay, great. Let me just read it. Just make sure that's cool. Same thing with like the pencils and, and layouts. Just, just I mean, almost just like a set of eyes, you know, that knows the business and, and able to give some feedback. I, I don't, if it's someone else's creator on project or even if there are anthologies in the story, I, I don't, there's, I don't need it to be, um, I guess when we were just to go back real quick to like changing hats, like I, I really have to take off my writer hat or my creator hat when I'm dealing with someone else's material, because I don't want to look at it like exactly how I would do it. I want to look at it more as if a reader or just an editor and advice and be like, okay, I'm not controlling this, this story at all, but this is what I see from my perspective. You know, maybe you might want to think right. about this because this isn't clear or I'm not quite getting this. Just whatever like alarms might come off as as somebody from the outside. Can you think of a of a project or or I mean it might just be every project where it's really rewarding for you to be able to, you know, get be a part of the process of getting this this book out there into the world, you know, not your own book. Yeah, well, I mean, Dead Legend just came out. I don't know if you have a chance to see yeah. that. Um, that was amazing. I, I mean, that was something I just really felt like was their project. And they just needed someone, you know, to help make it really happen. And um, they had done, they had like a little pitch and they had done a Kickstarter that wasn't successful. And James, the writer, had had like a car accident. Writer, it was kind of bad timing. Um, but I thought it was a really great project and I wasn't the only one saying that. Like there's just a lot of support for the industry. I just, it can be tough, especially when it, something doesn't fall into an exact niche or, or genre, you know? And I mean, it's weird saying that because it's, it's uh, like martial arts adventure, but in terms of comics, I don't know. There's just not, there's not a lot in that, at least not outside the superhero. I mean, you tend to have like some of them, like, you know, the, the, uh, 
what's his face, Iron Fist or Shang-Chi or something. Sure, but anyway, sure. I just thought it was like great. I just mostly just thought it needed to come out. So when they said they needed help um, to do that, you know, I, I picked up the book and uh, I was just really impressed like each because I, I had like an outline for it. But reading the script for each issue and then seeing the artwork come in and the colors, I was super impressed with how well it came out. And I, I believed in it from the beginning, but I was like, oh, well, this is really special. It's really neat you know, story. I, it, there's not a lot like it out in the comic industry and I'm really happy to see that come together. And it, it, it even, you know, went above my expectations. So I wanted to ask something, uh, you, you said something earlier about how you'll sometimes have an editor on certain books. How many like full-time in, uh, employees do you have? Yeah. Um, that's or, like people working on it, I guess, maybe not employees, but, um, employees I have, currently four in terms of people who get a paycheck you know consistently as opposed to um i don't know you might like freelance some other job or something sure, like that sure. um that's a social media project mm -hmm. manager um i have an operations manager and then to get to editor i have an editorial director joe illage i don't know if you know him but he he's yes. worked for i mean milestone valiant lion forge um and so he's sort of like my full-time um editor and like he was the editor on dead legends um he's got kind of a mixed job in the sense that he's like um responsible for editorial direction you know on the broader scheme of things but then there definitely be like a good chunk of projects that he's editing you know himself um i might edit some um my wife might edit some um and um Justin, who's my operations, uh, sorry, um, chief operation, operations officer. Yeah, sorry, I'm not very good. <laughs> These terms, all the different terms. That's the thing you come up with the terms and figure out like what their role is and how to label it best and whatever. But he's been really helping with the organizational stuff, and he's um, been editing the mezzo and and things like that too. So that, that's I guess what my answer is. It's a sort of a work in progress. Um, yeah, because I've been going from something that one, it was only my creations, you know, then to something that only I was sort of like, all right, I was doing an anthology or someone else's story, but I'd be the one sort of, you know, checking on it and things like that to being like, I can't even, you know, now I'm to the point where it's like, there's going to be more projects that I could even sort of oversee at least, you know, to the level that, that it needs. So, um, yeah. And then we'll see how this like 10, 10 issue 10 book a year works if I need to bring in like freelancers here and there or not. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I, I wanted to ask because, um, you know, like you said, you've got like books, I think you said till 2020 or 2021 planned through. Oh, right? yeah. To the next and, two and years. And, I like, pretty right. Much, so, yeah. Yeah. The idea of like a, a team of like four to six people doing like 20 books in two years is like, that's a tall order. Yeah. And then we, you know, and that's why like getting Justin on operations is like very key because it's like, we really have to work this out, as I was saying before with the schedule. But I mean, we're looking at it sort of like, you know, a month for 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 the at least the final stages. I mean, you're working on everything sort of progressively. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you need that these these days, especially with a comic. You know, there's the whole creation process, the artists turning and thing. That's a long process. But even nowadays, when you get something done, you really want to be able to have the time make sure it's produced well, to have a marketing plan, start getting review copies out there. And that's something that over these next two years, we really want to get down where it's like everything has 
its path that it goes through, its process. Check, 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 check. And don't just be like, oh my God, we're getting the lettering in, so let's send it to print and blah, blah, you know. That's something you can do on one book when it's yours and you're like, oh, cool, we did the last issue. Let's pack it up and send it out. (laughs) So we first heard about you guys. You really really came on our radar, uh, I want to say, last year. Um, maybe the year before. Yeah, maybe like and, 2017. Yeah. And it was around the same time that we started to hear about uh, Ahoy and a, and a few other different, um, you know, publishers who were, who were, you know, on the rise. And one of the things that I remember us saying at that time was that the, there were a lot of new publishers really stepping up and trying to do different things, um, whether it was a different distrib- distribution model or... Or, you know, more diversity in terms of creators and things like that. So I guess my question is, is sort of two-part. Uh, the first part is, how do you guys feel um, you've been able to kind of carve a niche in the industry uh, through the stories that you're trying to tell? And then is it difficult to uh, to stand out in an industry where there are so many different publishers sort of um, vying for spots at the same time? Well, uh, let me start with sort of what you ended on. I think in terms of these other companies coming up, Ahoy, I don't know, Vald, I don't know who you'd consider my peers or the new ones. There's a bunch out there, TKO. Um, I like to read a lot of their books, um, pick a lot of them out. Um, I think in a broad sense, it's good that all of us are out there. I I do feel as if there's more of a... um, what would you call it? Um, I think there's a viability to small press publishing, independent press. That's that. I don't know. Maybe it was there in like the eighties. I feel like there were some of those, but when I first was in, it was almost like missing. I mean, there's more stores. I remember going in my first comics and retailers that were just like, we just don't carry independent comics. And there's just this, this mindset, like, you know, like you just have to like do this on your own thing and don't expect much support and you're going to be like a nobody in the business. And in terms of the percentage, it's still pretty small in terms of like what isn't Marvel and DC or whatever. But just the fact that there's more of us doing this, I think, yeah, the vi- the viability just seems to be increasing. And you have readers that are like, oh, well, I like to read all these different sort of indie creator owned books and they don't have to like choose one company or whatever i mean that's what i would think most of our readers wouldn't have to be i'm not trying to you know make the next like fan wave the world fan club or whatever that reads all my books i would think if you'd liked one of my books could easily like an ahoy or a vault as well um so i think there's a lot of sort of cross promotion that's not even intentional um in terms of our own books and and i'm just focusing on each project i mean if i think something fits our sort of voice which is I think it's a, it has a little bit more of a global stories about the world, about culture. And I mean, that can be fantasy, futuristic or modern day type thing. If, if you're saying something about society um, and cultures, that sort of fits our um, overall sort of aesthetic. Um, but, you know, I, I don't really focus on anything other than making that book the best that it can be and get it to the readers and get it to its audience that would enjoy the book. And that's all, that's all I'm really worried about. Glad to hear about uh, dead legends. I know Gavin's been really excited about it. 
Yeah, they've been, I mean, and that's one thing maybe I didn't touch on that much is that they have been so like full press yep, yep. forward on everything. I mean, they're just always promoting it out there. It just makes it so much easier to be like, uh, oh, I don't have to let, you know, do as much to let people know, like, you know, on social media or stuff. I mean, you know, we post and everything. But no, they're, yeah, they're, they're really out there. They're on it. They, uh, I, I think, I, I think like the, the moment issue one dropped, I, that's like once a week, a, a tweet or something. Right. And that's one of the cool things about doing those, um, that program we didn't really talk about, but having the first issue come out, do it digitally every other week, and then the book comes out. It's like you've got this two-month window, and you can just go nuts for that. You know, there's no long gap. You don't have to think of something to say about it in between. It's like two weeks later, there's here's issue three. <laughs> uh, I, I was curious as to like the the decision behind releasing it sort of in a bingeable weekly format and then collecting it towards at the end. Can you just talk me through the thinking there? Have you seen success with that at all? Well, we just had our first uh, first one with Dead Legends. I mean, Mezzo is sort of going at the same time, but we haven't quite completed it. So, I mean, I'll have to take some time to look back at it, and we got some more planned for the next two years. Um, but, you know, I didn't... You know, I looked at it less like I was like reinventing the wheel or coming up with some revolutionary way of doing comics and more of just looking at how people read comics, how they consumed media, the state of the industry, the state of indie comics. Um, and single issues are really difficult. I mean, for a long time, they've been considered a loss leader. There's very few comics that actually make money, you know, as they come out. Um, plus, it's difficult. I mean, as someone who's reads some myself i got in the habit of just sort of buying a number one and rethinking like oh well just to test it out and then if i like it i'll get it in trade and some of that has just been my time and how i like to read but also it's difficult to find these individual issues like sometimes you just won't find a number three or you won't sure you're not sure when it comes out and there's like a two-month gap between issues and then then you forget about it um and then just the marketing itself can be really difficult i mean people say the positive thing about having the different issues is that you have something to promote it again. But I, I think that's when the distance is so long between issue number one and the trade paperback. I mean, I think the reason we do that is just because it takes so long for creators to draw and to put these things out. But but there's no reason you can't do that ahead of time. So I think the real key to it, which it's not something you mentioned quite as much because you're all like, oh, the the premiere edition and then the digital and this like that. No, the key to it is you get the material like done in advance. And, and that's something you can either do or you can't, but you're not going to, I mean, that sounds like, Oh, you're doing a lot of work before you're selling anything. And it's like, well, but you're not promised riches just because you put out a number one and a number two, and it'll probably see diminishing returns anyway. So since plus, I mean, I guess then you kind of like limit the risk of like having delays and stuff like yeah, that yeah. too. Yeah, like I mean, can... it's, it's could be a mess anyway. Um, I think I think the main <laughs> problem is everyone's that rush to get that number one out, and then it, you know it goes to shit from there. <laughs> you know that, but the problems start after that. But I was like, if if we can hold off on that, get the material done almost as if we're just going straight to graphic novel, which you know is a, is a good business model anyway. Why not still have the fun of having like the number one issue? I don't think people will really mind. I mean, as long as they know about the program, you know, I'd hate to like fool anybody, like thinking that, you know, we they're buying number one just to find the rest, which is why we call it a premiere edition and, and said the plan from the beginning. Um, but there's been a lot of independent comics that have like 
you know, pretty much been canceled mid series anyway, or, and just, uh, okay, we'll put the trade out, but we'll never put out number three and number four or whatever. Um, but, but then I was like, all right, well, what, what can we do? We can put them out digitally. And since we have this material already, we can just go boom, boom, boom every other week. And won't that kind of be fun? Like, here's a print issue, buy it if you want it, you know, not, you know, don't worry about it. You can read it digitally if you want to, like, you know, and that way it's actually quicker. I mean, that's how we, we tend to like, well, even, I mean, there's binge, you mentioned binge, but this isn't even really binging. This is, this is even slower than like your weekly TV show. Right. I mean, is right. it Mandalorian? We we're talking about that is, is back to the weekly, yeah. weekly matter. So I wouldn't even call it binge. It's more like, um, just not following this crazy monthly or, or bi-monthly plan that comics do of waiting these long time just for another 22 pages, you know, um, let's speed that up a little bit. And then because of how previews catalog works, you know, when you're getting all that press for the first issue and launching the series, why not have the trade paperback in the catalog during that time? And then, yeah, it gives you just a two month window where like, this is my new thing, you know, five issue, six issue series. Here it is. Here's your little taste of it. Serialize it if you want. And here's the book like right at the end. You know, I, I just think that's just a, just a smarter model of going about you know, especially in independent series and uh, yeah, yeah. Risk management too, you know? Yeah. And, and, and to your point, it, it makes it easier to manage the fanfare, right? Cause you try to, you try to extend the, the promotional value of a story over a course of a year versus those two months that allows for you to, to, or more organically and, and probably an easier way to build that up. Right. Yeah, because if you have if you spread it out too much, it's like okay, well you've got the pre you know the previews for the first issue, and then by the time the trade comes out, I mean I don't yeah, I mean it's often more than a year, and you're just like people have to be like people have to almost like make like a a bookmark in their mind or something like that, right? You know, for these readers, and that's how I often like just thinking about from a reader myself. It's like oh yeah, I, th I thought I heard about that. A year ago is the trade out yet or whatever you know i don't i don't know it's like the messaging is a little unclear so so i did want to ask though um you know because we we're, we're kind of talking about like about this model that, that you guys are working with and uh you did say before that there's kind of that conversation i guess or at least that thought that comes up of well isn't that a lot of work to get done before you sell it like how have you found that that affects the production of the books like has it ever been a challenge um, maybe even on the side of like the creators who are working on the books in terms of like having to do, you know, what in, a, you know, the more traditional model would be like six smaller, you know, paychecks each issue rather than like one full volume that you have to like spend all that time producing before you see any return on it. Has that like been a challenge or led to any like production hiccups or anything like that? So far, it's been good. It's only been a positive. Um, the only thing that you have to do is make sure the creators understand the long process and of what they're in for. That just because we signed the contract and you're starting page one, we're not going to announce the series. We're not going to. You're not going to see a number one out in three months from now. You know, like type thing. Like as long as they understand that, that you know, we've started. You know, like like you said, like a two, we just signed a project that we're aiming for the end of 21, you know, as long as they're okay with that time frame. I mean, they still get paid. I mean, we, we set up a system where we like pay them as they turn in the material. 
Um, so it's sort oh, of like okay. an advance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's a combination. My, my creator-owned projects are a combination of backend and, and advances, um, which makes it easier. Um, yeah, just make it as long as they understand that that's what it is, and it takes that long. If the, if they want it to be a five issue series in a graphic novel, which t is pretty much the publishing plan, then they understand that's how long it takes. Um, but yeah, just sort of like being waiting because you get excited. You get excited when you sign the contract and you start. You get excited when the first issue is done, and you're like, oh, I want everyone to read this first chapter, and you're like, uh, yeah, they're going to be reading it next year, sometime. <laughs> You know, yeah. like get the rest done first. Um, but in terms of production, it only helps. It's so much easier when you know when these steps are going to be done and you have time to get them done. And it's like you're almost just waiting for that, you know, that material to you have it earmarked and you're just waiting for it to come in and you just put it in and you just, you know, it's on the production line. Everybody, nobody's rushed. Everybody from editorial to production has the time to be like, oh, we need to just fix this or just this. Or um, you see things like with a greater sense of perspective too, because you're not just running through something. You're right. like, okay, wait a minute. Let's make sure, because this was the plan for this issue. So let's make sure that that you've, you've properly conveyed, conveyed, I don't know, motivation or something that'll come up later. Yeah, it's just so much better all around. I don't, you know, I haven't been in it that long, but I'm not seeing very much, much negatives to this. I'm really glad to hear that because I, uh, again, like, you know, we are, that's something we talk about on the show a lot is, is like the, the publishing model of comics and, you know, um, you know, and you said like when you were thinking about this, you're thinking about, you know, not how comics are consumed, like how media is consumed and like the reason comics are consumed the way they are is because, you know, I think it's largely been, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that's how it works and that's, you know, that's what you do, yeah. you know, and to see you, you know, doing something that is different. And I know, like you said, well, I don't like look at it as if I'm reinventing the wheel, but I mean, you know, you guys are definitely doing something that's like a lot different. And I think when someone does something fresh, it like can seem like a gamble. So it's so great to hear that you're seeing it really like pay dividends because I think like it, it's obviously like. I think the quality of the work is speaks for itself and that like the model is giving people time to like work and, and really work on the craft of making these high quality books. And then the distribution model is really healthy, I think, for an indie book, like you said, where people are, you know, like less likely to go and, and pick up a book that they've never heard of from a publisher that they haven't heard of. But I think when you have this model where it's this weekly thing you can look forward to, it's so much easier to keep it on someone's radar in this like very hyper media saturated time that we yeah, live in yeah. now. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question here. So what in your mind have been the greatest obstacles and challenges to overcome running a publishing company or, or even when you were creating it over the last decade and a half or so? I mean, it's such a big question. The whole thing is like climbing a mountain, you know? What um, is the hardest thing that you've dealt with in your professional career? Make, Just really quickly. a comic book. No, I didn't say quickly. Making a comic book is really hard, making, especially making a long-form one. You want to make a um, – a single issue or a zine, zine or something that's small, then yeah, you can just be like, hey, I want to try this out. Do your best. Put it out there. When you want to do like a sustainable thing that takes, you know, five to ten people 
a year to two years to make before you put it out. I mean, that is, I mean, that's a, that's, that's like a life. That's a commitment. I mean, this is like, this is what I am doing. This is who I am. This is how I live my life making this thing. Um, you know, it's just not fun. It's not a hobby. It's, it's, you know, it's a job. I mean, it's a job and, and it's someone else. I mean, independent comics, someone else isn't paying you. Someone else isn't like clocking this time or that time. You know, you, you have to do it. You have to decide this is, this is what my life is from now on every day, you know, besides maybe (laughs) taking a day off or whatever, just every day. This this is what I'm waking up to. This is what I'm doing till I'm till my eyes can't see straight (laughs) and my kids need someone to read them a story to bed. Yeah. So actually, I wanted to bring up uh, your kids again. So you said that you've been a professional for 15 years now, right? Like that's been your full time? So uh, and Yeah. I mean, uh, 15 years – like I said, I still had another year of art school to go, but you went right, out of the okay, company. But okay. yeah, pretty much. It's been my – yeah. So and you told us before that your uh, your oldest child is 12. Yeah. So for most of your professional career, like you've been a father – and like had to juggle that as well like is that something that you know because it's been for so much of your professional career like did did, how much like of an adjustment was that for you from coming out of being into a student like moving into you know trying to be a a professional and then also having to juggle the responsibilities of like having a family yeah it was a big adjustment it was learning it both at pretty much the same time um I mean, I guess in one way it's good. It really makes you learn to like structure your life and use your time well. Um, I remember those first few years of parent of being a parent. I was like, "What did I used to do with all this time? <laughs> if this baby is taking up like three, like you know eight hours a day of my time, what did I do before I had one? <laughs> like, how did that work? I just, was I just sitting around on the couch? <laughs> like, how how did uh you know um so yeah uh, i mean that's why i started off so slowly like i said at my first series like you know just this first 150 page graphic novel took basically the first three years out of art school so it was balancing that and and being a parent um but i mean i I mean i don't know if i mean if someone might never be a parent but i mean they got to do it at some point in their career if they are or if not i'm sure they have other things that, that fill up their time. So you just have to figure out what works for you, how much time you want to commit to something. I mean, you know, it's really important for me to spend time with my kids and, and, you know, they're only young once, you know, so I mean, as much as right. I love making yeah. comics and looking back and seeing all these great books I made, I also don't want to like look back and see my kids are all grown and I didn't spend enough time with them or, or get have that know. cat's cradle moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard. It keeps me busy. It's why I've given up. I mean, I don't play video games. I don't watch movies, you know, to, to the extent that, you know, maybe I would like to, uh, even reading books is tough. I mean, I, especially since I'm researching so much, it's like hard to even find time to read something for enjoyment. Um, which is why, I mean, like Netflix or something is, is always good. Or these, you know, Disney Plus with a Mandalorian is like, all right, I can just sort of like, just like my downtime can just sort of be catching something whenever. Like I don't have to build my schedule around it. You know, it's, it's like whatever, a new episode will come out. You can just sort of like watch that when you have a spare 45 minutes or something. 
I can't imagine you ever have a spare 45 it's, minutes. It's, it's infrequent, um, which is why most of these shows I haven't watched. Um, but yeah, it's good to find. And it's, been, it's why it's tougher to watch like these longer, more epic shows too. Um, Cause you're like, and then like movies too. It's like, I don't have two hours. I might have 45 minutes just to like yeah. chill or whatever for just, you know, this one day during this week. Um, so you're not watching the Irishman then, I guess. The, the, All, th- the three and a half hour uh, Scorsese yo, yo, that oh, was on Netflix. Oh yeah. I don't, I think I heard that one, but no, I don't, you know, I haven't watched anything <laughs> epic um, in quite a while. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny. Just, you know, as I say that, like I, I have been watching the Mandalorian and that's been fun. Um, that's been the one thing I've had some time for. So, but yeah, just something like that, like one thing per week or something. Yep. Yeah. Let's talk about another epic tale. The book that uh, you have, Mezzo coming. It's Mezzo, you said, right? Mezzo? Mezzo, like Mesoamerican. Mezzo. Yeah, like took it from Mesoamerica, yeah. And uh, yeah, so let's let's talk about the book. We we got a chance to check it out in advance. It's coming out pretty soon. And um, yeah. like I said, I think I, I got through the first like four chapters. So I'm, I'm most of the way through it. And I, I've really been enjoying it so far. Um, Great. It's, it's got a really different um, – just kind of feel, I guess, because there aren't a lot of, you know, stories, let alone fantasy stories that I think pull from uh, that kind of cultural, like those landmarks, right? Of like yeah. the, the environments, like the lush jungles and the architecture and all those things like you, you don't see. Like a lot of fantasy is obviously like based on Western kind of thing. So that was something that immediately drew me to the book. Um I would love to hear what what was the inspiration there? Like, what did what got you to this is the story I'm going to tell here? Well, you know, I I had wanted to tell a fantasy story. I was sort of playing that around in my mind, but I think the thing that was always holding me back was I didn't have a different sort of perspective um, to go with. Like, I thought I could come up with original storylines or whatever, but a lot of these things they just end up looking too similar i mean you've got a lot of the um anglo-saxon medieval history swords dragons or you you follow the sort of lord of the rings thing which has elves and ogres and like there's just too many tropes so i kind of wanted to find some just new like like you said like landmarks like aesthetics and and feel of it um and so when I met with the original artist, Josh um, Zingerman and stuff like that, he had been in South America recently and was like, I really want to draw sort of this stuff. So, I mean, while still being like sensitive to it and not like trying to tell someone else's history or their culture or whatever, I was like, I, th- I think it would be cool to actually draw from the aesthetics and feel of it. I mean, it is, you know, history of, I mean, we live in the Americas and things like that. So, um, I just wanted to see, I wanted to see more of it. I thought it would appeal to people. Um, The more I researched about it, there just seemed to be like certain events, storylines that could be catalysts for the story. The volcano um, erupting, um, their beliefs in astrology around the sun movements, things like that could really just, I don't know, it makes for some cool stories and, and just, you know, just have people dress a little bit differently and, and, slightly different weapons and and you know like i said it's a it is a fantasy fictional world so you know i i i thought you know the balance would have always been tough to like being historically accurate or playing around with something so i just you know i went with the fantasy world 
that just sort of had their architecture and, and you know outfits you know you know feel having this feel towards it and um yeah i mean we just mostly just comes down to the story it's just a very universally human story about survival about empires um about people about community you know so you know, it was really just, you know, finding a way to, to tell something that looked fresh and original. And and I think that's so important because I am a, I'm a really big fan of swords and sorcery as a genre, but you're totally right. I mean, it's so caught in the shadow of the Lord of the Rings and, and the kind of status quo that was established with, you know, Tolkien's work. And that stuff is great, but we've also, it's been done to death, you know, mm-hmm. and um, getting to see... You know, approaching those same kind of themes through a a new environment was something that I I immediately clicked with, you know, like as soon as I, you know, when you sent it over our way and I was just kind of like flipping through, I was like, oh, this is this is something that's immediately fresh. And uh, and that's that's such a great thing, you know, especially in this genre. Yeah. Yeah. fantasy is usually something that i don't enjoy specifically for those reasons like the the, the tropes that it consistently plays over but because this was uh, a different aesthetic you're coming at it from an entirely different continent right so there's just new experiences to be had and understood all around and i think that was the 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 most interesting part for me was just where seeing this where you could sort of see the potential for the rest of the story continue to go and things you can even continue to draw from and, and, and on, you know, there's the the plethora of gods and, and history that's there to just pull from and, and, and reimagine. Yeah. Well, and, and it, it even in small ways affects the flow of the story in a way that's very interesting where, you know, the uh, like the action scenes, for example, you know, you said like people dress a little bit differently, differently and they hold different weapons. But I mean, even that, right, like not seeing a couple of knights in plate with long swords squaring up, it, it leads to the action unfolding in such a different way. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't feel as as stiff as a lot of European fantasy is because it's got this different flavor. And that's yeah, definitely something that resonated with me. Even though, so you have you have this aesthetic and you have the setting established. Where where do the ideas come from for for establishing your characters, Rodin and and uh, and Kima or Kaima, uh, with with this kind of giant Zelkul Empire and and the Hoxkin tribe? Like you have you you have this setting, you have this aesthetic. Where did the idea for the characters and and for and for like this great empire and tribe kind of come from for you in your research? Well, I, I think it's a combination of universal um, statements I wanted to make about characters. You know, like Rodin is very much like the good soldier. He's following along with what his empire said, and and that's that's what it means to be you know almost like patriotic in a way and he's doing this for his family and this like that like there's some things there that's struggling with and you know um um but i'm also mixing that with sort of the history not not the exact history but i was sort of taking okay what does it mean to have lived you know in this time period and the empires and researching it i mean you have the mayans and you have the aztecs and the mayans were there was no centralized mayan I'm sorry, you know, the word is actually Maya. That's one of the things that it doesn't roll off the tongue right. Um, but 
but um, the adjective and the plural of Maya is just Maya. Oh, um, huh. Yeah, I know because I never just knew that. the way our our language is constructed. We want to say Mayan, um, but it's the Maya. Um, they didn't have a centralized empire. Um, one of the first ones that actually like the largest city, um, um, Teotihuacan, um, was because of a volcano eruption. The population from one area you know just made their way into another and luckily the this um the city teotihuacan wakan um sorry i read it a lot but i don't have a lot of people like telling me how to pronounce it um (laughs) you know luckily they had they just had like really amazing city planning like almost urban planning and using the landscape and were able to take in these people and and became like this this large city and that was actually the inspiration for the aztecs and the aztecs were the first ones to sort of build an empire and and they believed that they were destined to conquer all of the land that everyone should follow their leader and their their gods and things like that. So I was just sort of taking from that concept of, okay, what if you had this really decentralized, it was the same thing with, um, um, with the, like the, the native Americans in the U S you know, those, those Indian tribes, um, was very, so everyone had their different nations. You know, we tend to think of it as being like one type of people, but they were as diverse and spread out. So what if you had a very decentralized something, but all of a sudden one group came in and it was like, no, no, we're, we're in charge here. We're going to take over, take care of it all. And then, and then what would the resistance look like? You know, and that's almost where you get into like the whole like Star Wars and, and, and other things like that. Well, how do you take this group of people that are very independent and have their own world? And how do you pull them together and be like, well, wait a minute, we have to fight again, you know, come together because it's the only way we'll stand up against this one big force but then the question becomes well then aren't we just becoming our own force and like is it possible to sort of have a decentralized um independent non-empirical you know existence and then who who monitors that you know and how do you you know so i don't know these are big universal questions that it's what i what i what came to me while reading about the history um of mesoamerica but also thought were worthwhile questions for us to ask, you know, in any culture, in any society. Yeah, and I like how that's kind of represented in this, like, you know, where you have the the more the I'm sorry, I don't remember the two names of the groups of people, but um the 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 group that lives in the jungle and like has a way more like you said that decentralized society and yeah, is like yeah. more naturalistic against yep. this, you know, empire that is becoming more industrialized and you know is is finding all these like kind of trappings of of a broader like centralized culture like that and that that culture clash is uh is definitely interesting is that something that you read about in your research or was that just a theme that you know that that was that was exactly it and and just when i read that that was a thing that happened with the aztecs and the mayans and and um you know how the the Mayas were very spread out all the way through the Central Valley of Mexico, up through the Yucatan Peninsula, and they're just all over. Like, and you know, you didn't have ways of traveling all that quickly, too. So, I mean, you have these these people that had their similarities in in culture and language and stuff like that, but they didn't really, other than very like slow trade, you know, with each other. But then, with the Aztecs rose up, and then they were like okay, we're going to build the farms here and these resources are going to be here. And then they'd conquer some people because they mined, you know, the jade or the obsidian or they, they had water. So they did this here. And then they were just like, well, how do we make these people, 
you know, it's sort of like our society where we try to work on a sense of trade and and different industries and things like that. But then who's who's in charge and you know whatever? And can one person just be like, no, no, you're doing this all for us and you have to pay us tribute and things like that? So I, I mean, I just found that fascinating, and I was like, well, that's that's sort of really the key to to what can make this sort of specific to to this this sort of um, culture or history, but what is also broader that we can all sort of like learn as a universal right. story. Yeah. One of the, the, and I, it's, I'll dance around this point because I don't want to spoil anything in the story, but one of the things I, I thought was interesting too is how um, it seems anyway that you're looking to make some commentary on how religion can play into those, those structures as well. And, yeah. um, and how religion can kind of be weaponized and uh, yeah. and that's something that's again interesting to look at through a lens and through religions that aren't like Christianity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because... exactly. Well, I didn't want to make it seem like it was one. I mean, it's certainly not saying like the religion that the the Maya or the Aztec followed is bad, but I mean, it's not it's not a direct correlation to Christianity. It's not um, a correlation to Islam or whatever. It just simply, here's one religion that someone's using to justify war and that some people are better than the other, you know, the chosen few and the, the less than. And here's another one that's just sort of like everybody's equal and we're just trying to understand the earth and how we, you know, relate. And it's not even to say that the one is the right, because the one thing you'll learn about the other religion at the world tree, and that's very more naturalistic and stuff like that. But I mean, they don't know <laughs> everything either. They're just trying to find answers. But it's a, a little bit more, you know, I feel this, I see this, so so I believe in this type thing, rather than I've made up this very intricate story, and you must do exactly this, you know, or you will die or whatever, you know, so it, th that's what I was looking at there. It's, and it's really, I hope that there's no like takeaway that like religion or spirituality is, is bad. That's why I tried to create a balance there. But yeah, it can be a very powerful tool when used to divide people and, and justify war and that some people are more worthwhile than others. Right. And I think, I think, I think you do a good job of not demonizing religion because I think there is that counterpoint of that, like, of that there is. Um, you know, this naturalistic religion that, you know, from my point of view as a reader right now seems to, you know, have truth to it, you know, and, and have, um, po have positive, have a positive force on the world rather than, you know, this kind of false idol that's being used to manipulate people that wouldn't be interested in war to go to war. Yeah. And you know what I see? I almost see it like the discovery of truth. It's not about a good religion versus a bad religion. It's like, are you using this to understand, you know, not science, because science is sort of like a specific thing that you can study. But I mean, there's like sort of a truth to our reality and who we are. And, you know, is it a quest for that or or not? You know, or are you making shit up, basically? <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> that, that's just always my intuition. Like people can come together and 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 talk about their connections to each other, and it doesn't all have to be like you know founded in science and and things like that. You know, and I mean, obviously, very supportive of of believing science and things like that. But but I mean, you can have a more spiritual life to that, whether it's an organized religion or or not. But don't don't start saying that something that was in a book, you know, or one preacher says is like the the truth and and the motivation you know, to live your life, one life and someone else who doesn't do that isn't, isn't living their life correctly. Needs to be killed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. To, to take it to an extreme, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
There will be no peace until everyone that thinks differently from me is dead. Yeah. (laughs) Which, I mean, there's a lot of that in the world today, even if they're not saying that directly. Yeah. 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 I feel like that all ties together with the whole solar eclipse thing in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where where, where, um, just a natural phenomena creates this just supernatural paranoia in people. And it's like almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's something that's like that's sort of my like my low level plot line that's throughout that, you know, will culminate in the end of, you know, when the next eclipse does happen, because, you know, last last eclipse, you know, every I'm making it about every 12 years, you know, there was that volcanic eruption and, and the the um, earthquake that caused the destruction. And so now this big question is like, OK, does that happen every solar eclipse you know does does it does everybody have to pay tribute to the gods in order for that not to happen um or what's going to happen it's sort of like the y or y2k well, what was that the y2k thing y2k yeah. Yeah. yeah you know is is, is shit going to go down i don't know we'll, we'll find out you know yeah and it's like you don't want to you know you don't want to find out by finding out oh yeah no it's going to and you didn't do anything right yeah or or, or more apropos, how everyone thought the world was going to end in 2016 because of the Maya calendar. Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, which is actually, right, more of the inspiration for that because there was that. Which which turns out, I mean, they had their sort of calendar and their astrological um, beliefs was based around the the world recreating itself every cycle. You know, they had Bactoons um, is what they were called. And so they just had simply planned that out for a number of years and then it just stopped at like 2012 or whatever it was just simply because that was already so far in advance that they had just stopped. And then this myth came along that, that meant they were predicting the world would end. It was like, no, the world ended every, whatever it was, 30 something years. And they were just, there was like the fifth reality and the sixth reality. It was kind of trippy that way, you know, from, from, from what I can read of it. Oh, sounds like you really did your yeah. research. It's cool. I read, yeah. I mean, I read a lot of books, and it was fun. <laughs> yeah, no. There's, I mean, it's it's a tough history because a lot of it was destroyed um, during the um, the conquest. You know, Cortez, and it was that it was that. Um, but you know, I mean, they've they've done their best to sort of put together from the the um, the carvings, um, on the stele and and things like that. Um, learning about their astrology, their gods, and, and just the history in general. So, yeah, I, I got a whole bunch of books. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating, you know. It's technical reading, you know, but I don't know. It's, it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's always just interesting to learn about cultures that are that different than your own, you know. And I think it, it definitely it's, – it's cool to see that you kind of really just inundated yourself with that research and, like, trying to learn about, like, the realistic aspects of it as well as kind of, like, the mythology and everything and mm-hmm. finding this this world somewhere in between those two things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious. Are you researching anything now as fervently? Is there, is there anything that's, like, really gotten hold on in, in, your, in your head? Having to do with the Mezzo storyline? No, no, just anything in general. I think they're trying to get you to tease the next project. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm just going back and forth between the different, the different things that I'm researching. Um, yeah, I, I probably, yeah, I, I don't know that I can give an answer to that yet because I don't want to announce. Totally you know, understand. Whatever I'm reading, but yeah, anything that I do, I'll probably. 
one way or another, even if it's not a specific history like this, find ways to research it. And just, I just want my stories to be very like rich in life and, and, and the world and everything. So I, I um, think it definitely paid dividends. Cause I think one of the things that really sticks out to me about this world is that it feels lived in. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, yeah, that's, that's definitely like a tough thing to do when you're establishing a whole new world, especially when you can't rely on tropes. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't want to just like open up with like maps and character descriptions and, and things like that, or, or just long expositions about history, you know, not, not that narration of like in the world of blah, 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 where these people are, have done this. And it's like, you tell almost like the first, you know, part of the story and like a, just a page of, uh, um, I don't know backstory or whatever. I want people to learn things along the way. You know, I opened up with action right from the beginning. I mean, why why they're going to war, why they're having their battle is very important. But you know, let's just open it. Let's just get it started. You know. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tyler. I'm sorry that uh, Sean had to miss the, the, oh. <laughs> the end of it. I know he was excited to talk about the book, but it's just an excuse for us to have you on when the next volume is ready. He can always just call me up and we can talk more about the book then. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, no, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I really, really love this project. You know, It's a passion of mine, so it was fun to talk about that and talk about the company and publishing in general. Yeah, well, we'll have to have you back on to pick your brain again. Uh, so before before we let you go, um, yeah. what uh, just give everybody the plug for when they can get the book, where they can find it. You know, keep an eye out for it because it's a good one. Yeah, well, I mean, you can read it digitally now on Comicsology and SpinWiz. It's kind of it's five issues. Um, four, the fourth one comes out um, December eighteenth. Um, the fifth one somewhere in the holidays, I don't know. And then the book January eighth, so right after New Year's, you can get the full five issue arc. Uh, it is volume one of a big story. So I don't want you to make you think it's like an all-in-one. I mean, it's a good chunk of of the story to get you started. I'm glad but, to hear uh, that. Yeah, yeah, it's got more coming. We're now already working on the next volume, and and got plenty of that. So if you like it, know that you know you'll have quite a lot to look forward to in the future. Awesome, great. I I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll send us some teases before it's ready to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. Awesome. So, uh, one more time before we get out of here, where can the people find you? Where can they find Wave, uh, Wave Blue World? Like any, you know, the website, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the website is just awbw.com. I shortened down a Wave of the World to it's uh, an acronym there. So, yeah, com, and then just on, you know, look up a Wave of the World on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're around, you know, not like super crazy social media, but we, we've got the staples. <laughs> awesome. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us, Tyler. I hope we can chat again soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Thank you. So uh, I'm back uh, and I'm in a different space on the internet. As soon as you started talking, you froze for the video and we should leave Uh, it in because it's funny. But like, what the fuck? (laughs) Today has been a day. Uh, I don't know what to really say about it, but... Uh, hopefully you guys did enjoy the interview that we did with Tyler Tinchanner. Thank you so much to you, Tyler, for joining us. And you guys really should look out for a Wave Blue World because I do think that they are uh, very much on the rise. So um, give their books uh, a listen or a look rather. And uh, definitely check out Mezzo. I really liked it. I didn't get to talk about it, unfortunately, it's but I really book. did like it. Um, yeah, so... So let's let's get into the pals pulls here. We'll start with Marco, who chose Tales from Harrow County Death Choir number one. So this is 
Colin Bunn and Tyler Kirk returning to dun 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 Harrow County. So I'm <laughs> extremely excited for this. Uh, uh, I got to talk to him. Well, we got to talk to him uh, <clears throat> a few months back uh, and got to ask him about this book J- just a little bit. We got to touch on it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I-, I absolutely love this series and it's really awesome to see both creators come back to it. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, what reintroduced me to horror in the comics in the comic space. So I, I hold it, I, I regard it very highly. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm just excited overall to see these two creators come back together. Awesome. So is is Harold County done? Harold County is done. I think it ended issue 34 earlier this year. Okay, cool. So they are returning with this one shot. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't stay away. Awesome. And then you also. Nope. You also chose the Low Low Woods. So this is a Joe Hill book, uh, and oh. uh, I, I don't know if it's actually him. Actually, it's not. I, I don't believe it's actually Joe Hill, but it's one from under his sort of uh, his imprint, right? So it's actually by Carmen Maria Mikado, uh and artist Danny on uh, who who we know from um, another Image book. I'm forgetting the name right now, but she comes back. Uh, to this and she's an artist that I very much enjoy so she's going to be doing the art here with Carmen writing uh, and yeah I mean I'm big on horror this is a Joe Hill stuff the Joe Hill imprint and anything that I've read from him especially Lock and Key has been excellent so I, I, again I'm just super excited for this and the creators also fun fact if you want to listen to us interview Tyler Cook Comics Pals episode 134 there it is nice. there so from Phil, we've got the Green Lantern hardcover, volume two. Yeah. Oh man, this this could be the book of the year. Honestly, um, saw a good discussion on Twitter a while ago about how uh, this one in in just twelve issues could rank uh, in the upper echelon of the best Green Lantern runs ever. Even just looking at the cover of this hardcover uh, by Liam Sharp, it's just just majestic. It's it's a true wonder. Um, you get the opportunity to follow uh, Hal Jordan's journey with the uh, Black Stars here some more. Uh, and there's some weird Grant stuff with Parallel Realities. It's great. Please give it a read if you haven't been reading it. Are you finished with the series? Uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't read any of this Black Star uh, spinoff stuff that's come yet. I, I think only one or two issues have dropped. Yeah, I believe the second one just came out. Yeah, so I, I haven't touched that yet, but I read okay. these 12 issues. Awesome. Uh, I chose Batman 85. Batman 85 is the culmination of Tom King's run. Uh, so this is the wrap-up of the City of Bane arc, which is closing out the series. This arc has taken a lot of twists and turns. Uh, they've They've... One thing you can definitely say about Tom King's run is that he hasn't held back. And I'm excited to see how it resolves. You know, I've been, you know, I, I've, I've talked about some of the issues that I've had with the run. I've praised it when I've enjoyed it. So I'm excited to see how it ends and ushering in the new sort of status quo slash stopgap as uh, James Tinian takes over for a few issues until we get the new writer on 100. Uh, and then pretty much all of us chose Doomsday Clock number 12. This is the, this is it. This is the end of an event that 
has been going on for two years, uh, an event that we have loved a lot, but has been plagued with delays. I can't wait for this issue. Can't wait to reread all 11 previous issues because I don't remember what <laughs> yeah, happened. Yeah, that's where yep. I'm at. Like, I definitely want to reread it this week before <laughs> 12 comes out because I, I barely remember where we left off in 11. And, like, I feel like it's time now, you know, for that reread and to really try to experience it as one piece. I, I want to go back to it because, like, I, I feel like the last issue I was upset about or did not enjoy – and yeah. I don't remember if that was true or not. And it was. okay, so yeah, so I, I don't even remember why. Uh, it felt like well, not it, a it, we, we, don't, we don't have to go into it, but like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. I don't. I literally don't remember. I just remember the feeling. Yeah. Well, you know, Marco, I think the audience might like to hear that. Um, so that's why I was saying it. Nah. <laughs> yeah. They don't care for my opinions. I, I, I enjoy doing a show that, that's, that's informative, you know? You know? Yeah. Uh, so let's move on to the news. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984 got its first trailer this week. And uh, the internet the internet has loved it. The internet has loved it. Um what did you guys think of this trailer? Obviously, Wonder Woman, the first film, was pretty well praised. I think I think people loved it. And now we're finally go- coming back to this world. Really liked this trailer, actually. I, I've, I've said before that I didn't love Wonder Woman. Uh, I did not love that first movie. Right. Uh, it was a lot of setup. And I just it just didn't grab me. But this trailer hooked me more. Than, than anything that I had seen um, in, in Wonder Woman, quite frankly. Because it's got more style to it. It's got more flair to it. Um, you know, the, the the 80s vibe is is really cool. And obviously that's in vogue right now. So um, I like that. I'm a big fan of Cheetah. I've said that on this podcast. You guys already know I love Cheetah. Yes. And... Um, She's in this movie, so that's awesome. And then, like, there's some really cool shots in this movie. Like, when Wonder Woman is whipping the lightning, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, And then the, the mall scene, which is directly from Greg Rucka's run, you can see a lot of oh, inspiration. Yep. Even the costume that she's wearing is... Um, is uh, I can't remember. It's Liam Sharp and... Another artist. I, unfortunately, I cannot remember her name at this exact moment, but I love her art and I love this run. So, um, yeah, very inspired by that. I felt this just looks good. It looks good to me. I don't like that Trevor's back. Okay. I I I, and I don't know why. I feel like he's. It's gonna be a weird. You have to watch the movie, I guess. Is like, didn't we hear rumors that he was gonna be like his grandson or something? Was that it? So that that was a rumor among many others, but the trailer makes it pretty clear that that's not the case. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about Kristen Wiig as Cheetah? Hard to say, just because um, you know she's obviously not Cheetah in the trailer, but uh, you know, in general, I'm not familiar with Kristen Wiig. I've never seen her in anything. And oh, wow. I know that she's a comedy, more of a comedy actress, which doesn't 
super fit with what I know of Cheetah or um, or her human form. Uh, so I don't know. She was fine in the trailer. I like their relationship. You can tell that they kind of fused. Um, uh, I think her, I can't remember her first name, but her last name is Minerva. They fused Minerva with Candy. Candy is one of Wonder Woman's best friends. They fuse those two characters together because at this time in Greg Rucka's run, she has a full cast of characters, but they used Candy for the first movie, so now they can't use her again. Um, so Kristen Wiig's character is kind of adopting some of the more like funny, goofy elements of that character. They might have felt like the movie needed some comedy relief. Um, sure. I like I like that Wonder Woman's armor is like kind of brighter in this movie. Yep. Yeah, it's not as the uh, it, it makes sense for the time, like not the pale war sort of getup. The colors aren't as muted, which was mm-hmm. a little more um, characteristic of the Zack Snyder era of of these DC films. Yeah, uh, I liked it a lot, and I agree with what you were just putting down there. Where I I think the the color palette is, um, it's weirdly modern because we're in like this very like still like kind of 80s inspired neon obsession right now and a lot of our like you know um art and branding and stuff so like it feels like weirdly weirdly modern for a period piece um but yeah i, I really liked it i think that there's a, a couple solid action shots and i'm very into that the costume and like the pops of color that we're getting as well uh yeah phil can you tell me anything about maxwell lord uh yeah he um he kind of created the Justice League International, uh, and then he became like a real corporate douche nugget in <laughs> Jeff Johns' Infinity War. And, oh yeah, Infinity War. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was kind of a one of three central antagonists of that story, and um, he killed Ted Cord, and then Wonder Woman snapped his neck. I remember that. Cool. So uh, we may get some neck snapping oh, bro, action lo- from this Wonder Woman. I'd oh, love to I watch Gal Gadot snap somebody's neck. That could be interesting. Uh, <laughs> I'm down to watch her snap Oscar Isaac. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <the fuck? laughs> That's you know. Uh, yeah. No. I, I. I'm really. I'm really hyped about this movie. Honestly, like I'm ready to enjoy Wonder Woman on the big screen. Because she is one of my favorite characters, and I was disappointed that I was disappointed mm. by part one. So yeah. We get the invisible jet. Yeah, that was How about cool. that? It wasn't, like, it didn't look invisible, but yeah. come on, right? I, like, I feel like it's pretty clear. Yeah. I, I really hope at some point they decide that you can still see Wonder Woman sitting while flying in the air. <laughs> Just one scene. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm 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 um, I'm excited for this too. I mean I, I definitely was hotter on the first one than you were, Sean, but um yeah, I just I really like Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman and I feel like I feel like these they have the sauce, you know, and like there were definitely some real problems with the first one. Um but what it did well I really loved, so I hope that they're able to kind of learn from the mistakes of that third act and give us something that yeah, like yeah lives up to the heights that 
it was able to achieve. Like the moments like No Man's Land and some of the like character beats that were really effective, you know. Um I would love to see them be able to up the ante and like really just deliver on that stuff this time around. Definitely. Really, as long as long as they um as long as they refrain from that final act of the last movie, yeah. they'll be fine. Just like don't give us a big dumb superhero ending at the end because you need to like show off your cgi muscles you know like and i it kind of looks like they did that because i remember for me in the first movie all of the best fighting scenes were the smaller ones and there were only like two of them and this they showed us like three different set pieces that feel like smaller fights so i'm hopeful that maybe they opted for that because i'd much rather see that i'd rather see like a few cool scenes of her just whipping on dudes rather than like you know, a big, slow fight with some overpowered villain who she beats anyway. It's like, okay. Yeah, but in, in fairness, her whipping on dudes is more reflective of, of where you're at in life than anything mm. else. I, there's not mm. a real way for me to comment what? on that without, like, letting the listeners a little too far into my bedroom. So I'm going to abstain. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, please. Let's... uh creak the door no, 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 Marco. that's that's more no, your shtick on this show oh, okay. so if you know we can i can put you on blast if you want i mean <laughs> we can no we can't actually uh so june 5th 2020 for wonder woman 1984 uh definitely looking forward to it so uh you know we'll talk about this movie again for sure when they drop the next trailer and give us give us a little more of a window into what they're doing with that one. My question is, are we going to do another Wonder Woman month where we do like, you know, some cut? Cause we, you know, we got volume two of uh earth one wonder woman that we never, we never did an episode on. So Ooh, there we go. That's a surprise book club. There you go. It's not a surprise. Not anymore. It, well, I'm going to yeah. cut it out. <laughs> oh, oh, not the video. Oh, no. I'm not on YouTube. So if you're watching on YouTube, <laughs> you know, go tell, oh, spread, man. spread the, the truth. The Such genius a of Marco. Release the Embassy cut. So, <laughs> so uh, I wanted to close the door on a on a story we've been talking about for a couple weeks now uh, about the Dark Knight Returns. We've talked about the you know that piece of art, the Future is Young piece of art that caused all that controversy a few weeks ago, where. Uh, on Chinese social media, they were very angry because they felt that this art was supporting the, you know, the the resistance movement in support of Hong Kong. And we asked the question of like, you know, what was the origin of this artwork? Why did they put this out? You know, what was the intent of Frank Miller and Raphael Grampa when they put this out? And so we actually finally have that answer, uh, courtesy of Hollywood Reporter, who interviewed both of them and you know, ask them about this. So, uh, Grandpa had this to say about, you know, how that all happened. DC posted the wrong image without our names and the credits. Oof. That is literally the reason why they took that art down. (laughs) So, you know, good old-fashioned human error. (laughs) No conspiracy, no reactionary... A, a response to the heat. Just they just put out the wrong art. What? It's a stupid shit. Yeah. Do not. What is that? There's a saying. Do not 
uh, do not build to conspiracy what can be explained with incompetence. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's a great saying. Or just like Occam's razor. Yeah. Grandpa went on to say, people want something to be inspired by and people are fighting for their freedom. This is what the golden child is. We're trying to tell a story about people thinking for themselves. Miller followed up with, the main thing I want people to take away from the comic is for them to put it down and say, boy, that was a good one. It looked beautiful. That's the goal. There are political entities out there so afraid of expression that they're afraid of a picture. They're going to collapse anyway. I love that quote. I love that quote because it's true. <laughs> if you have to, if you have to limit your people from free expression, <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, also, and also, while we're while we're on this subject, um, you know, usually Kale's the first one to jump out and say it, and you know, I backed him up. Uh, Fuck China no, and Free no, Hong no, Kong. No, 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 no. Sorry, I actually, I've been listening to the episode, so I haven't been on them, but I've been listening, and I want to clarify the position of the show. Which is free Hong Kong. No, 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 no. Go ahead, Marco. No, no, no. China, China, we, the People's Republic of China, right, is, we will not bend to the, the, the will of those, of, of those naysayers who will say, we won't show for money because we will. Agreed. Agreed. No, no, that is not say the no official to the position of the podcast. Get out of here, you goddamn bootlicker. <laughs> The position of the show is what I say it is, and I say the position of the show is we have no position. Uh, no, the the, the views of these individuals do not reflect the comics. <laughs> my my position is the future is young. That's all I have to say. The future is young. Uh, no, I love this. I think this is great. Uh, you know, maybe it wasn't their intention. Based on what they're saying, it wasn't their intention. But it worked out anyway because the Dark Knight returns is is sort of you know about this clearly it's about the idea of free expression you know of 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 tearing down tyranny so you know awesome i think it's funny because we called that we were like oh like even if it's not on purpose like you know he's gonna be stoked and then the fact that they both came out and they're just like i mean it wasn't intentional but i'm really glad that they did it like yeah cool yeah (laughs) fight for freedom the book just came out. I haven't had the chance to read it yet, but I am looking forward to reading it way more than I was before this incident happened. So there you go. Win, win, Gorilla baby. marketing. <laughs> One nation. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> Under Kim. Oh, my God. All right. So the next story is a little bit of a doozy. So the Luna Brothers are two creators that have they work together a lot, um, you know, with Image and different publishers like that, separately and together. Um, and they had been building a name for themselves within the industry, but uh, more recently they haven't been been working together. Um, and if you guys will recall, Joshua Luna actually had an issue with image recently about a book that he wanted to put out uh, you know an idea that he had for a book um that they kind of snubbed him on and and didn't want to didn't want to put out uh it was called um american asian yes yeah i do remember that thing yeah and who was that which one of them was the one that had the problem with that 
Joshua Lloyd. Okay, and that's the one who's now come out. Yeah, so he's so he has now come out on Twitter and discussed why he doesn't work with his brother anymore. And he made some heavy, heavy accusations about abuse and different things like that. I will let Joshua speak to it by reading his tweets right now. Uh, he set up our comic Comic profits as 70-30 in his favor, even though it should have been 50-50, punched me and pushed me around at home and at cons, told me I couldn't share my personal art on our social media, but shared his creepy personal photography that featured girls tied up with rope. Speaking of contracts, when I wanted to leave our shared condo, he denied me access to our mortgage contracts so that I couldn't. I had to get a lawyer to help me out of the mortgage and had to move out in a single day without warning him for fear of him becoming violent. To the outside world, we were a partnership, but Jonathan exaggerated his contributions and diminished mine. For years, people didn't even know I was an artist because of how well he obfuscated the credits. He also touted himself as a co-writer when he loosely plotted at best. Because of this, not only did I have to escape my home, but I had to sever business ties with him and lose all kinds of opportunities, including movie and TV deals, because the more power he got, the worse his behavior became. I had to leave so much of my life behind just to get away. So seeing him continue to receive so much industry support, he's on the front page of Comixology right now, when his career is built off so much theft and abuse, while I get pushed out by image completely, just makes me sick, sad, and beaten. Now, before you guys jump on this, I do want to cite Jonathan's response on Twitter. He said, I am not a perfect person. But sadly, my brother Joshua has made some very offensive comments about me, twisting our history to serve himself. That said, I love my brother very much. I've tried many times to work things out with him. I really hope one day we'll be friends again. What do you guys make of that? Well, he's not saying no. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll say it again. I mean, we it sucks that we have to talk about this kind of thing so often, but generally speaking... Um, when these kinds of things come out, like I err on the side of believing the person who's making the accusation, because what does he have to gain from it? You know, like coming out and like making like this stink about it. Like, I guess if him and his brother have this personal, like this breakdown of their personal relationship and he's lying to screw him over because his career isn't going the way he wants it to, like, that's a narrative that I guess some people could believe. Um, and I'm sure things like that happen all the time, right? That being said, like, Jonathan doesn't do anything to defend himself or establish his position other than say that his brother's lying. He's twisting our history together to serve his own, his own needs, right? Well, like, that, I don't buy that because in what way is this serving his own needs? Is him coming to Twitter and and taking this pot shot at his brother, if it was true, going to get him a job? No. Is it going to help his book that Image didn't publish get published? No. Like, if anything, all it would do would be to hurt him. And he doesn't even position it that way. It's not even like, you know, oh, like, my brother is lying and he's using this to attack me because we had some personal disagreement and here's my side of the story. He literally just calls his brother a liar and says, I hope that, that I love him and I hope we can patch it up someday. And it's like, I, 
I, that's not like enough for me, man. Like he's making some pretty serious accusations and you're not even trying to give any explanation as to as to your side of things. So what am I supposed to do? You know, who am I supposed to believe? The person who took professional risk by, you know, attacking his brother who has some clout and who people respect for what to what end? These are always shitty situations, and I, 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 I'll, I'll, similar to Pete, I'll, I'll side with the, you know, the accuser on this, just because he didn't say anything. He, it was a tweet, like the president tweets more than that, and whatever bullshit, <laughs> right? Like, but I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's definitely something that. I definitely hope that they they work out and that they come to at least some sort of, if not agreement, at least some sort of settlement, so that there's something to for Josh or to get to 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 get out of it. Because um, if those accusations are true from a, a creative perspective, you know that's that's also money in his pocket that could be affected and um, or it has been affected, and so. Hopefully, yeah, while his brother thrives, right, right. So, like, hopefully, you know, those things are are, are worked out, and uh, he he leaves in a better, hopefully, situation. Yeah, shit sucks, dudes. Thanks, Phil. So profound, Phil. I did my part. I don't know about this. You know, I feel like we oversell Phil's credit a little, little much, huh? He he basically plots this thing. Mm-hmm. And he definitely pushes you around in conventions, Marco. <laughs> mm-hmm. Such a diva. Mm-hmm. So, Sean, sorry, you were trying to yeah. make a serious point. <sighs> okay, so we heard from Joshua earlier this year about the situation with American Asia, right? And he said some really, really inflammatory things that, you know, all, all of all that. All that he said kind of, you know, died on the vine in that there wasn't a ton of reaction from the industry. Uh, You know, we didn't really see a lot of creators come out and cooperate or say, yeah, we had this happen to us or anything like that, Um, which certainly doesn't mean that he was lying. Um, But, you know, for this now to happen as well, um, it's... it's, it's I don't know I don't know it's 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 tough. Uh, this guy has two major major issues within the same year uh, going on, and I, I saw someone someone uh, on the Bleeding Cool article that I'm referencing here who simply posted the credits from Ultra, and in the credits it 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 gives Jonathan the credit as co-writer, artist, colorist, and letterer. And Joshua the credit as co-writer. Now, if that's true, right? If those credits are true, then 50-50 pay wouldn't necessarily make sense. Uh, so Josh is, is alleging that Jonathan obfuscated uh, the credits and, 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 and you know didn't distribute them properly. But if they were working for Image, Image is receiving the pages... Image knows who's drawing and, and, and writing and, and who's doing what. Uh, so Jonathan was just, just lying to Image the whole time? I mean, that's what he's alleging, right? I guess is that 
he's been he's been the one who has contact with their you know publishers, their editors, their their partners, and he's controlling the narrative and you know um, putting making it seem as though he is more responsible for the bulk of their work when it's more of a fifty fifty partnership. I guess that's that's Joshua's take on things, right? So like if he's being miscredited in the book because John is the one controlling the narrative, that would make sense, you know, like he's trying to take credit for his brother's work and 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 take credit that it's like oh we're partners but like you know i'm the i'm the genius i'm the one who's doing most of the work and you know to your point we there's no way for us to prove that right we only have joshua's side of things and jonathan's side of things and the art as it exists right and and they did seem to 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 stop or slow down working together at some point because uh josh did do his solo thing in whispers and Jonathan of course did Alex and Ada, which we did a book club on that we really loved. Um, Jonathan's Jonathan's response to this whole thing. Now, when I read his response, my first thought was, Oh, Oh God, I don't know. But then I thought about the situation that happened with Hope Nicholson and Trey Dean. And, you know, we talked about that like two weeks ago and Hope tried to give her side of the story and she was shut down. We all agreed that, you know, we really didn't buy it. And, you know, it seemed like she was trying to kind of make herself look good or whatever. And, you know, she did, she wasn't apologetic enough. It, it seemed inauthentic. So in this case. Jonathan isn't painting a picture. He's not trying to tell a story. He's not really trying to establish a narrative. He's simply saying, you know, this isn't true. But he's not going into detail as to how it's not true. So my question to you guys is, what is he supposed to do? Because if he tells a story, then he's airing dirty laundry between him and his brother, which is obviously disgusting. You know, if if what Josh is saying is right, then sure, you know, of course, you know, get it out there. But if Jonathan is correct, then you probably don't want to have this kind of thing happen in public. Uh, Especially if what he's saying is true and he really does still have love for his brother, you know, and like he wants to deal with it privately and, and squash the beef, not do it in front of the world. Yes. And uh, also, you know. They, they publicly they've always had a great relationship, so you just you don't want this. It's bad. It's a bad look all around to be involved in this. So what is he supposed to do? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's tough to say, and I I see that side of things. Like if if his side of, if his telling of events is true, like maybe he sees that like he's taking the high road, you know, and that like he doesn't want to get in the mud and you know. Um, further this in a public sphere and I, I think that's that's reasonable and it's worth considering for sure yeah yeah because we don't know you know we're outsiders looking in and the best we can do is like you know pick apart the rubble if yeah i mean i've never had this happen but if someone accused me of something publicly i i you know i'm I, most likely i would have a response closer to his because it's like you're you you lose either way yeah um i i hope 
that this isn't true just because it's screwed up. It's really messed up. But I also don't want Josh to be lying. So it's like, I don't know where I stand. I don't know what to make of it. But what I can say is that these are two creators who seem to have, like, all the talent and potential in the world. And it sucks to see their their partnership end like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, particularly because they're family, you know, like. Sure. That's, you know, it's uh if it is true, like, I think the the ramifications are, you know, they're pretty damning for John, you know, because it isn't just being a terrible partner. It's like taking advantage of your brother, you know, like that's uh, that's like a that's a bond, you know, that's a serious bond. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a terrible situation. And no matter what the truth is, it's not good. So, you know, I think um, the takeaway here is just like be better to each other. Take care of yourselves and each other. The wise words of uh, Jerry Springer. <laughs> That's how he ended every show. Damn. All right. He's a great, great philosopher of our time. That's right. I've learned a lot from the man. So, uh, ICV2 put out an article that I found to be fascinating. And uh, the title of it, the headline is, Comic Back issue sales are up, but market has changed. Now, I read this whole thing. I highly recommend that you read the whole thing if you're intrigued by some of the more, like, in-the-weed stuff as it relates to the sales of comics and, you know, the industry and how it shifts and turns. We talk about that kind of thing a lot on this show. And so what ICV2 did was they interviewed a couple of store owners and... They kind of got their feedback as far as, you know, taking their pulse on the industry. Uh, And I thought we could talk about this a little bit. So it specifically focuses on back issues and what's going on with that. So the article says, uh, most all direct market comic stores are back issue stores as well. That piece of the pie seems to be growing, but in ways retailers really haven't seen before. So Joe Field, who owns Flying Colors Comics in Concord, California, says back issue sales are definitely up and have been a growing piece of our business for the last two or three years running after a long lull. There is more activity in first appearances of characters of maybe collecting specific artists of writers. But in terms of collecting things to have a complete collection, I really think the publishers have blown that market up by constant restarts and doing seasons rather than long running series. Makes sense. So Carl, uh, Car D'Angelo, who owns two stores in LA, uh, both called Earth 2, said... There's still that classic guy with his list out there, and he's buying only the issues he needs to fill in his run, and I love that guy. But I think there are more people buying back issues just because it brings them joy. Real quick, I feel like it's a real missed opportunity to not have it be Earth 1 and Earth Earth 2. Right? You know? That was burning my mind. That's that's exactly (laughs) where my my mind went. I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Or if he called it Earth 2... Two, that would also be funny. Ooh, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I feel like I feel like I mean I fit in that category of just like digging for back issues because it's a fun way to discover something that's outside of the norm. 
Like I'm not, I'm not, most of the racks are, you know, superhero stuff, big two, some of the smaller stuff that's like fine. I'll pick up, but I mean, otherwise you, you don't really find a lot of what would be alternative comics in my, in my experience. I, I, I go to the, the long boxes that are way in the back and probably have like water damage. Cause that's like just the shit that interests me. Right. And like, I'm not. And I imagine some of the new readers coming into the space are in a similar place because they haven't grown up with having to or reading superheroes necessarily. They grew up with it around it, right? So maybe that doesn't necessarily interest them in the comic space because, well, I see it in movies. Um, that's just an assumption, but uh, I feel like, like that's where I come at it from a lot of the time. And I think that if if there's a market enough for me, there has to be a market enough for everyone else and i feel like that gets affirmed in places like spx where you specifically look for places outside of that that norm so i want to i want you guys to speak on this but i want to get a little more into the article oh, yeah, yeah, because it does speak to something it does speak to what marco's talking about as well so uh at earth 2 they actually have a spinner rack which you really don't see at a lot of comic stores anymore uh, but what they have is a one, three, and five dollar options, um, and they they kind of just you know go with whatever seems to be interesting at the time, whatever you know, random picks and things like that. Uh, and and so uh, D'Angelo said the following: something might be a ten dollar comic in Overstreet, but we're using simple price points to get people looking. It's not going to break our bank. It's not going to break theirs. But if someone spots a fun Superman book or a goofy Lois Lane comic, they might buy it, not because they were looking for that specific issue, but because they just like the idea of this cool comic. Now, the other part of this, and then I want to open it up, is speculators. And... In the 90s, speculators were a big deal because they would come to the stores and they would buy up all kinds of things. They'd buy the variant covers. They'd buy the number ones. They'd buy the book by the new hot creator. So I spawned number one is like worthless. (laughs) Right. Uh, And so that's kind of making a return. So on that subject, D'Angelo said, there is the return of speculators. There are day traders dedicated to the idea of flipping comics literally flipping them in a day they want to buy once in future from boom studios for four dollars that day and sell it for ten dollars on ebay that night i don't know you can't even buy lunch with what you made after ebay fees and all but there are definitely those speculators uh so he said uh, joe field on the subject says we might have eight to 20 people waiting for us when we open on a wednesday morning why are they waiting Maybe they want first crack at the variants, or they want to scoop up all the hot books for that week. What we've always done is manage our inventory in ways that thwart speculation. If you want to buy copious amounts of something, you better do it before our final uh, cutoff deadline. You can't come in here and sweep everything off our shelves on a Wednesday morning because that's unfair to the hundreds and hundreds of people who shop the rest of the week. There are limits to everything that goes on our racks, whether it's a hot speculated book or not. So that's all I'm going to actually read from the article. They do talk more about some different things. They talk about how the internet has changed the speculation market. That stuff is really fascinating, how there are apps now that you can use that tell you how much a comic is worth and how speculators 
come in and, and try to buy based on those things. But all that being said, I want to, you know, kind of get you guys to chew on this a little bit. And, you know, what do you think about it? Pete, you were you were hot. So why don't you go for it? Yeah. So I um I think this is really interesting. And, and when I saw the headline in terms of, you know, the whole how, how the back issues thing is evolving, I, I think that the point that was made by that first shop owner is a really salient one that I think that Marvel and DC are, you know, they're Marvel more so I would say than DC are, are in this mode of like so many number ones and relaunches. And, and he said, it's kind of like a seasonal model almost that like, I think it really kills, it kills at least my enthusiasm. And I think that there are a lot of readers like that where it's like, it just feels like everything is trivial because it's just the next thing and it's the next thing and it's the stopgap between the next thing. And it feels like very treadmilly. And it reminds me of that story we talked about a long time ago where DC was seeing an increase in those reprints, the old reprints that they were doing. And, um, and that they were kind of like, well, why are people reading this and not what's new? And I think this is probably a symptom of that same problem, you know, that like there is kind of a fatigue, I guess, of the way that a lot of modern like big two books are done. And it's really interesting to see like people going for the back issues and stuff. And obviously there's the collector's market, speculator market and all that stuff. But I think that might actually be us finally seeing, you know, ramifications of this trend that started way back in like 2008, 2012 with like the, the real like proliferation of the MCU, which is like people now going back and reading entire old runs because you can read an old run and know that there's a beginning and an end and that you can get into it and like have that fun of going to the store and collecting. And it's, you know, um, it's people finally getting in on it. You know, and, and maybe that's people that have been reading for a long time, but that are getting more activated over time or, or whatever, because you see that too, right? Like you look at somebody like Marco, who in 2008 didn't read comics and saw Iron Man or whatever it was, the first movie that was the one that clicked with you. And then now Spider-Man you're two. one of the most, I'm sorry, Spider-Man 2. There you go. That's, uh, you know, understandable. It's a good flick. Um, and taking that, you know, to its logical or not logical but to its extreme now right of marco is one of the the most active buyers that i know and of of all kinds of comics across the the map so you know i think like it's interesting to see how the market is changing but also how like readership is changing and i think that comics are the the longer that superheroes and this wave of like nerd stuff stays in popular culture the more and more it's likely to trickle down and have the, you know the people we kind of affectionately call normies like actually go and pick up a comic you know like i have a coworker who you know, his entire exposure to the X-Men is from the 90s cartoon, video games, and the movies, and he's picking up House, the House of X stuff, you know, because whatever, it finally got him in. Yeah. And, and once you're in, like, a lot of people stay in. And I think to the point of, like, how re- the relaunches affect those number ones, it, though, when you have, like... Captain Marvel, for example, we we had to really tell listeners or even ourselves which run we had to read of Captain Marvel of 2015 because 
there were two so that funny. lost, right? Like, like, but if you think about it that way, right? And, and if you just compare it to what people would assume us like stocks would be, which is just because you have less demand for a certain a certain stock, you can uh, you can it fluctuates its prices, right? But that's not happening here because not only do you have varying prices in that fluctuation, but then you have different versions of the same fluctuating thing, and it just makes for a a, a model that isn't viable anymore in in the current the in the current distribution cycles. Like it, it's because they're consistently pumped out. None of those books have value inherently, so you have to. And I guess it was a good thing we had uh, Tyler on for this episode because you can you can kind of see how his model differs in in the way that it builds hype around books and the way that it potentially distributes um, in a two week window window versus every month having to hype up people for you know House of Powers or I'm sorry House of X Powers of X like that you don't need that because it comes in in like this larger wave that maybe you can pick up stragglers that wouldn't be lost over diminishing returns anyway. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, I think what you're what you're saying there Marco, it it ties into that um th- those end of the year reports that we always like to look at mm-hmm. and we've seen year over year that the the graphic novel, you know, the collected yeah. volume market is increasing, you know, and that people are buying more comics at bookstores and I think it speaks to new readers who don't care about the old way comics were consumed. And also I think just changing tides, like changing, changing ways that people consume media. And I think it seems pretty clear that a lot of people would prefer to read a complete story or to have a complete story they can read at their own pace rather than a month to month thing. Cause even like, a great example is like Marco and I have talked about how like books like Saga, right? Where like we buy it every month, but we kind of wait to read it. Yep. Cause like I've been reading it for like what, six fucking years or something? Like, like I don't even know at this point, like forever. And how do you keep something that comes out once a month? And in Saga's case, maybe, cause sometimes it goes away for a year or half a year or whatever. And like, how do you keep that in the consciousness? How do you get people to keep showing up for that? And you compare that to something like, like the Mandalorian right now, which is like the hot, you know, pop culture thing everyone's talking about. And it's weekly and it's an event, you know, and you look at wave blue world and like the way that they're doing it. And they're trying to adopt that more weekly model. And we talked about how the weekly model helped us stay interested in house and powers. Right. So like, I think, I think there's a lot to be said about the growing pains of how comics are, are distributed. And the fact that like, there are people that want to read comics that like just don't because it's hard, you know, and it's confusing and or like they lose interest because it's not how they're used to consuming media. And like it's interesting to see not only that there are like publishers like Wave Blue and, and you know, an, an image and whoever who are being more experimental and looking at different distribution models, but that even for like the big two and stuff, like there are customers who are foregoing buying things when they're new and getting them in the aftermarket because they want to consume them how they want to consume them. Right. And yes, we have to meet the people where they want to consume the things, not try to fit them back into some adherence that's been around because it's just been around that way. Yeah, and be like, well, we're the only game in town, so this is how you get it. Because at this point, people will be like, well, fuck it, I just won't read comics. Yeah, there's so much more. Yeah, unfortunately, though, I wouldn't say that OGNs have been terribly successful for the big two. But no, but, but not, um, not for the big two, but for the category. For the category of comics, it's seen the greatest increase just generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I wasn't allowed to finish what I was saying. Um, 
the the reason is because one thing can work for you know a certain kind of publisher that may not be able to work for a different kind of publisher or a certain kind and, of book yeah and at marvel or dc you know their books are more tied into other books and so for example if you're if you if you like um x-men right and you're reading x the the core x-men title that's cool um and you can just read that but you could also read you know x-force you know and it entices you to want to do so and so if you're the kind of reader who you know likes that and, and wants that weekly um experience you are being offered that over there um and, you know, that's a pretty unique example just because of how connected those books are. But even if you look elsewhere and you look at something like, um, I don't know, Avengers, you know, and you see how Avengers then spins off into, you know, other titles that you then pick up because you really love Conan and in Savage Avengers. And so you pick up his solo title. Those are ways in which other publishers don't work. And so you, you wouldn't even have those kinds of, of, of opportunities. Um, and of course, you know, people who read Marvel and DC are, uh, you know, the, the majority of them are more accustomed to going to their local shop weekly, whereas a book like Saga um, is going to appeal to more non-traditional comic readers because it presents uh, it presents a style that isn't traditional big two, you know, Marvel DC stuff. And so it's more accessible uh, off that alone. And with with new faces and new um, interests, you have new taste. And that new taste in, in, in that example, of course, is in graphic novels. And so because of that, a lot of those same readers are the same kind of readers who will pick up a Wave, a Wave Blue World book or a TKO book. You know, they're striking at that same saga type market that walking dead market, those people who buy those books in the trade are more likely to also like books by those publishers who also focus more on that kind of distribution model. Mm -hmm. And those same readers are probably not going to read a monthly Batman book. Right. Most likely. But they might read the, the trade version of that. Like maybe. Yeah. Like uh, making it so that you can, cater to either one i think is probably the best direction just looking looking forward for any sort of publishing house because I, I feel like you can tie stories together at a weekly or at a graphic novel level you, you don't you don't need a like a show in between each of the the marvel movies to sort of explain what happens in between you can you can still tie those pieces together in in larger stretches of story yeah, but I think to Sean's point too, like that gets harder the bigger you are and the more books you have. Like when you know, like again to compare to uh, Wave Blue because obviously you know we talked about that a lot on this episode. Um, Tyler's putting out ten books a year. You know, like Marvel puts out what fifty books at a time. You know, or like thirty or forty or whatever it is, and like coordinating all those things on a monthly basis when it's one issue at a time is probably easier than being like, okay, cool. What are the 50 series we're going to release this year how do they all tie together how do we have to time them and like you can't do things like 
having, oh, you read one issue of House and one issue of Powers and one issue of House and one issue of Powers or, or whatever, right? Like you, you can't necessarily coordinate those things in the same way and, and it is because they're just distributed differently. And I think like the real problem is that like the reader that Sean's talking about largely – doesn't really want to read digital comics seemingly or at least a, a big enough segment of them don't want that experience when realistically that's probably the way that that model makes the most sense i think i'm going to become a speculator i think i'm going to go into shops and find all the books i think that are going to sell the most so hmm definitely all the archie comics definitely and i'm going to i'm going to flip them for at least half the value Sounds genius. Nice. Thank you. Uh, the 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 other thing is that it wouldn't even be financially viable for Marvel to do that because how can you how can you you know pay up front to have this book completely done right to put it out in, in graphic novel and then it flops? How many times can you do that? Whereas in a in a in an issue by issue environment, you're letting the market determine what the market wants. And obviously, in some scenarios, that doesn't work as well because then you have books like um, Devil Dinosaur and Moon Girl that doesn't do so hot in singles, but does crazy numbers in graphic novels to the point where they've kept it alive um, for way longer than it it would have ever gone otherwise. Um, if if that book only came out in trade it probably dies because then it doesn't have the opportunity to build up an audience so that when the trade does come out there are people saying this book's been great for a while i've been reading reviews now's my opportunity to jump on board and i'm going to give this a chance to play devil's advocate though you could argue that those kinds of books and i, I know we talked about this with crowded as well right like that it, it you you were arguing that like it probably needs that momentum and that opportunity to like come up multiple times um but I think in the case of like Marvel or DC specifically, you could argue that it might it might go the opposite direction, where that like a book like uh you know Moon Girl that doesn't necessarily work as a monthly book as well, that they could put more marketing muscle behind it to make the release of the volume an event. And rather than being like, oh, it's been a good book for a long time, people would read it and you'd get to read it in its totality and have a review of this is a great book you gotta read it you know and like uh, not not to say that i'm disagreeing with you i'm saying i i it's kind of interesting to wonder like are there some books that die on the vine if they're not monthly because they don't have that opportunity to keep showing up but also like how many books number one is the the moment that it has and then we talk about all the time how number two might have half the sales and then by three or four nobody's reading it anymore and it's not enough to sell it on one issue but it might be enough to sell it on one volume and that works for image with their whole volume one's 10 bucks and then after that it's full price yeah but they're releasing the singles as well yeah so yeah yeah it's not, it's not. again i'm not disagreeing it's more just an issue of like i feel like it is it's it depends on the the property a lot immortal hulk would have been canceled already if it was done the way you're saying it would it would have it would have failed because it didn't get hot until 16 17 issues deep and and that's a classic it's a modern classic and it would have yeah, died right. in your model but see i it, it, go well, ahead. but but i guess like the the models are 
in the sense similar because they're scalable. Like as much as you can produce a comic for a thousand dollars, let's say, and the costs for that are well, assumingly right. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like, comic comes well, out for a thousand. Assumingly, where it's like the costs then become let's say two hundred, right? So you're spending twenty percent of that, but twenty percent of that scaled up to just inform a graphic novel is let's say a hundred thousand, and upfront costs are, are twenty. It, it the, the the scalability affects it to the extent that you can do you can do either one on any level because the production funnel is the same, but to your point on whether or not you could do that with qual- with uh with something like an immortal hulk or um devil dinosaur like it's as much as you extend that length of time you're probably diminishing your value more so than you would if you had it collected seen the reception up front for the for the graphic novel of that collected story and then residually be able to like you'll see that same diminishing curve but that's not to say that just because it didn't do well until a certain length in the run doesn't mean that that first arc wouldn't have gotten canceled uh as a single issue but as a book similarly it could have just continued going because it would have been good enough the next book would have been good enough and then fire but but again like if if a book okay so what you're asking for is for marvel to upfront have the writing done for the six issues, the art done for the six issues, which the cost of a comic to create from start to finish is way higher than what you just laid out. Like sure, way, sure. way, way higher, right? And so then they put the marketing behind it, which costs money, and then the book comes out and then it does soft numbers. Why in the world would Marvel then put in production another volume of a book that just didn't do so well? Yeah, whereas like I guess it's easier to justify month to month a smaller investment with the hope that it will eventually pay off. But but see, but if you're talking about it in terms of the same percentage and same scalability, that that doesn't matter. Like like that that argument doesn't matter because sure it costs more than a thousand dollars to produce a comic, but those upfront costs don't change. And if anything, they get more efficient as you increase that production because printing comes down, the actual binding comes down, production comes down. So technically you have those dollars become freed up to pay upfront creators. Except for the part where you're way, way, way more likely to give a chance on a book that costs four dollars than twenty. Or ten or fifteen or whatever. Well, I mean, yeah, are, are like, you? that's true. Like, but I, but yes, I also feel 100%. like you're you're more likely to read that one issue and be like, I'm not going to spend another four dollars on number two than to read the first volume and and you know maybe have more of a complete idea of what of what you're signing up for. Oh, okay, Pete. So how when was the last time that you dropped twenty dollars sight unseen on a on a book? It would have been at Philadelphia, I guess. I bought. I bought two Ahoy books. And why'd you do that? I was interested in them. Mm-hmm. You met the creators and you decided that you wanted to support what they were doing because we were interviewing them and you bought their comics. Now, would you do that same thing for random Marvel trade that you see in the store with creators whose names on it? You kind of know, but you're not that familiar with. You have no relationship to them. You're not meeting them in person. It's completely different. Yeah, yeah, and I don't disagree with you there. I also think that with that same mentality, I'm probably not likely to pick up the single either, though, depending on what it is. Right. Right? 
But you, but you also don't. You're not. You don't read comics every single week. You don't right. try new things. Like a random per. If I walk into a com, if you're if you're not a regular reader, and you walk into a comic book store because you 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 just saw Avengers, and you were looking at the racks, and you see that a regular book is four dollars, and then you see that the trade is twenty dollars. And you don't regularly read comics. I I don't think it's crazy to say that the average person would rather spend four dollars and twenty. Hmm. See, I I don't like. I think that that makes sense on paper, but I'm thinking about like when I the first time I went to a comic book store, like as an adult or or like like as a teenager or whatever. Like I picked up trades, not singles. It wasn't until I was like in it. That I started picking up singles, but you'd already you, that wasn't your first time reading comics, though. That's true. Yeah, but 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 I think the the initial argument you make stands where like it, let's say it's a book where you don't know the artist, you don't know the writer. Are you even going to drop money on that single issue just because it's cheaper? Sure, but you're only then you're only getting partial stories that you're spending twenty two pages, right? Twenty then you're spending twenty dollars for for incomplete stories across a number of them where you then have to parse out stuff where you can take the take the chance you have to take the chance let's say uh five times instead of taking a chance once for that same potential value but but the value is the unknown so if you're going to spend twenty dollars in one shot to buy something that you don't like you could just as easily have spent four dollars to determine you didn't like it and quite frankly when you when you look at how Marvel's OGNs have done, they haven't done very well. They're like, this is not even me just, you know, get take guesswork. This is like what it is. Right, right. They, 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 they just haven't performed because people don't want that. Well, the, the people who are already subscribers to that, because again, the category as a whole has seen that increase. So that's just to say in that vacuum, yes, but outside of it, outside of if you're seeing that that's where you see the largest potential for an increase in market value why wouldn't why wouldn't you immediately look to invest and look to find ways to assimilate to what is being what people want to be catered to but they did and it didn't work but they they aren't continuing to do it because it didn't work but it's not continuing to work like you can't do it for three five years and then give up on it you have to do that 10 15 years to start up because you have to shift the entire, to your point, you have to shift the entirety of the focuses and how this distributed and how the storylines are then built out in order to accommodate these different or would be different uh, ways to distribute the same content. You're asking for them to make a seismic shift in the way that they produce. For their future based off of what they could potentially be seeing the most income. But based on... Uh, Based on something that has never worked for them, that I don't know how you could think that that would make sense for Marvel to do. Honestly, like I understand well, if, why you why you might think that for like other other companies, but not Marvel or DC. It's really hard for me to grasp why. You if Marvel and DC, the only way that they distribute is weekly, then the only way you can get books is weekly. If the only way they distribute is monthly in graphic novel format, the only way you can get those books are monthly in graphic novel format. It's also it's. It's probably worth pointing out that like DC's had more success than Marvel has too. Sure. DC has had more success than Marvel has with their uh with their graphic novel stuff. And a lot of that stuff has been really good. But 
it still hasn't been like overwhelming. Yeah, it's it's like, not like the been, new backbone of the business. Yeah, like they've been they've been they've done solid numbers, they've been strong books, but I really don't think that they could that they, you it, it just it's just so such an insanely massive shift. Like you, you're not even considering the fact that you would lose readers like that. There, right. there are people yeah. who would just stop buying. I'm a hundred percent considering them. That, but then, how could you think that this would be the way to go? Because I guess he's he's suggesting like sh- it's short term sacrifices right. for long term. You know, right? Uh, returns, like th- those are people who've been buying it because that's the model that's always been, not the model that it could is it could be or is needed or is. Phil, do you have a like a legitimate opinion on this? Um, I it's obviously a subject we talk about a lot, but I I think I think single issues are objectively a tough sell for reoccurring uh, for, for for a person like Pete who doesn't actually buy books every week so when we talk about this example of the store earth 2 in california where they talk about how a major market of their consumers are people who come in just randomly buying books um i i think that is your casual consumer because um they don't care about the author they don't care about the artist and they're more privy to buy something on cover alone um with with regard to actually what represents a, a steady market for a store to stay in business and for a publisher to be able to actually produce something of a profit, I, I don't I, I don't know. Um because every time put it another way, I don't think DC or Marvel know. Um because you know, they will dip into different things and try something. Marvel trying these new number ones. Or, you know, they'll try a one-off graphic novel or they'll try a limited supersize series of like maybe three or four big issues to attract a more casual audience. And I don't know how many dividends they actually see. Um, And when I see a publisher struggling to find a reliable business model, I, I also feel like I don't have an answer to that. Because on the one hand, you have... A giant event series that will have a small market of reliable monthly readers or weekly readers who will buy every single issue and every single tie-in but that's such a that's the nichest of the niche market and so you see these initiatives from marvel and dc where it's like well how do we attract new readers and they'll try to like make new characters and they'll try to make uh more diverse characters and 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 try to appeal to younger readers and even that comes off it just it, it, it's a mixed bag so long answer short i don't know okay um yeah i think it's 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 definitely you know it's, it's a conversation we continue to come back to and um it, it'll be interesting to see what marvel and dc look like in 10 years Marvel has, I mean, the facts are that comic sales are up. That's just what it is, right? We know that. Um, and they're up year over year. And things, you know, 
whether you want to say they're looking good or not, you know, whatever. They're but trending the, the, positive. The, yeah, the sales are up, and that's that's what you want to see. Uh, is that is that when you decide that you want to take a big risk and, and shift things over like that? I don't know. I would be very interested to hear what someone who actually works for Marvel or DC in a position to say what something like that would realistically look like, what they would have to say. Um, but in all my years of looking at how these companies are run and how they operate and things like that, um, I would be shocked beyond belief if a graphic novel only model was something that they would even consider and even more shocked if it were to work i i think right now i agree with you i think that there's a non-zero chance that that is the future of comics though um and i don't mean graphic novel only but I, I think that there's a very, very realistic chance that eventually the way to read your books weekly or monthly will be digitally. And if you want to read them in a physical capacity, that you'll wait for trades. And I don't think that that's – I don't know that that's five years from now. I don't know that that's ten years from now. But I don't think that the current model is one that is sustainable like in a in a post-internet like internet marketplace world. You know, in a post-Amazon like netflix like all that shit it's just changed the way that we consume media and the expectation for how you consume media in such a broad way that i don't even think the the ramifications of have been totally felt like i think you look at how like napster revolutionized music and led to itunes and like now nobody buys records and the same way that like netflix was super disruptive to like dvds and, and all that stuff that were already in decline um, so I, that's kind of where I think we're going. Like, I, I agree with your overall point there, Sean, where I, I don't think it's something that makes sense for Marvel or DC to do overnight, or maybe even in the near future, because like, it is such a volatile business model and they're huge. Like, it's not as easy for them to do something experimental as it is for like wave blue world or image or whoever, um, that has a different model and that like operates with different expectations, you know, like, a wave blue world doesn't have an office in Manhattan that they need to pay a few million dollars a year to maintain or whatever, right? So you're right yeah, that four it, it's, employees. <laughs> uh, yeah, right, right, exactly. Like it, it's a difference of an organization that's made up of less than ten people versus one that has like hundreds of employees or thousands of employees. You know, um, so yeah, you're right to say that it's not a one to one comparison, but I also think that Marvel and DC are dinosaurs in the way that they do distribution in a lot of ways and that they're able to be so because they're so big. And I think we have this kind of too big to fail mentality about them because they control so much of the market, like, and they drive so much of the market because that's what people want to read, at least in America. And that's probably going to continue to be the case for a while. But like, I wonder how the model would have changed or if it would even still be viable right now, if it weren't for, all of their multimedia interests if it weren't for the fact that Marvel movies based on Marvel characters make more money than any comic book will ever make again. Um, so I don't know. Ever it's, has. Or ever has, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's that's worth considering too. You know, that like 
you know, maybe the the real re, the real answer to this is that the path forward for comics is to continue to be a niche thing that creates IP. You know, um, and maybe that's where we're gonna go too. And you know, that might be the real answer that we never consider when we talk about this. Is that like there isn't a path forward for comics to become bigger and more viable and more successful because that's not what they are, and they don't need to be. They just need to be profitable at the level that makes sense, you know, and that this is something I remember, you know, we've talked about with video games, Sean, where like maybe they're not supposed to be a multi-million dollar industry and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, Sean, I appreciate we come down on such hard lines on this. Oh yeah, dude. Um, it's fascinating. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 um, I think it's, it's interesting and uh, I'm very hopeful and positive for the future of the industry. Um, but I don't, I also don't think that there is the level of growth that a lot of other people think is out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, if you had told me five years ago when I started paying attention to comics in the way that we do now, that it would, that the industry would be as healthy as it is, I probably wouldn't have guessed that. So, you know, maybe it's not as much doom and gloom as like we sometimes like to prognosticate that like things are on, on the upswing and like, maybe that's good enough. Yeah, uh, and you know what? Uh, that's good enough for us here on this podcast. What a segue. What a segue. Yeah. Um, beautiful. Hopefully. Beautiful work, everybody. You guys enjoyed that conversation. We enjoy having it. Uh, let us know what you go to the shop for. Are you a diehard reader? Do you go to the shop week to week to buy you know, Batman and Daredevil? Or are you more in it for... You know, the, the saga trade whenever they decide to publish those. I really um, want to hear from someone who buys most of their comics digitally because I don't know, like, anyone personally who does that. Uh, I've been starting to make that transition. Like, outside of the, the stuff that I share, on, uh, like, the physical stuff I share, uh, mm-hmm. most of it's starting to be online. Like, my little Comicology. e-reader. No, I have, a, I have a separate e-reader. I just get the PDF or the CBZ and just get it right into this, this thing specifically. Marco's reading that indie shit. It's not even on Comixology yet, you know? <laughs> so hip. So if you want to let us know your thoughts about that and the way that you consume comics, you can do so by reaching out to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. Or, of course, you can leave us a comment and a rating or a like on whatever platform it is that you are watching us or listening to us if you are watching us make sure to leave us that subscribe and hit the notification bell so that you are made aware of when we drop more content huge thank you to tyler chin tanner for joining us Um, the interview was fantastic and we really appreciate your time on that go check out mezzo which is dropping i think uh the fourth issue is dropping this week this week Uh, this week yeah so this week you guys can can check that out this book is Uh, hot go read it yeah. yeah Continue to support that. Support a wave blue world. Dead legends is out. Gavin Smith is on that, right? Gavin Marco? Smith is on that. You can go check out our interview with him from New York Comic Con 2018, I believe. There you go. Uh, and of course, listen to our book clubs. We've got a ton of different book clubs out there for you guys, including Secret Wars, uh, including Alex Nada, which we talked about here, um, including Infinity. Including, including, including. There are so many. And last but not least, 
Uh, make sure that you guys, if you are watching HBO's Watchmen, make sure that you are listening to our podcast on that show called We Watched Watchmen. Uh, this upcoming week will be the last episode of the show. So we will have that episode out for you guys when we uh, when we review it. And get uh, get ready for our Watchmen book club. Go ahead. Yes, uh, go that, go that start your reread now. That'll be dropping at the end of the month. With that, let's do some plugs. Pete. Thanks for joining us here on another episode of Comics Pals. If you guys want to connect with me, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, come chat with me about how you read your books. I'd be interested to hear about it. And um, – yeah, if you want to get some more content from me, you know, I uh, work over at LootPots.com. I host their weekly Nintendo podcast, The Potscast, um, as well as our Patreon-exclusive show, After Dark. And uh, if you want to go check out my Twitter, I was actually a guest over on the Fanatics 4 podcast this week and talked a little bit about uh, Pokemon. So if you aren't sick of Pokemon talk yet, you can go listen to their spoiler cast where I was a, uh, a guest this week. So uh, thanks for having me, guys. So, All right, Marco. You can find me at Mr. Marco Animoto on Instagram and Twitter. Please talk to me about anything and everything indie. Tell me why the future is graphic novels. Uh, and, and young. And, and young. young. Don't oh, forget about young. No, 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 not young. Nope. This episode needs to pass the censors. So uh, also, please talk to me about, uh, I recently got from Vault Comics uh, a number of books there. They're doing this awesome giveaway through the new year. So please go check that out. Uh, Can you send them to me and Phil? Are you done yet? No, dude. I, I have so many. Hurry holy up. shit. Uh, he's talking so, you, you're talking about he's talking about TKO Marco oh TKO oh they sent us the, that was the care package box, no no so right? I was talking about Vault Comics oh I'm sorry we're getting a lot of books lately yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> but yes I will give those to you because they are excellent um, but from Vault I'm really looking forward to Deuce, Deuce of Hearts which looks like a love story based around tennis uh, which is being written by <sighs> Ricardo okay. Moe and illustrated by Tony Gregori and I'm also looking forward to Submerge by Vita Ayala uh, and illustrated Elisa Sterl. So if you guys have read that, please talk to me about it. I'm looking forward to these two in particular. <laughs> Marco's lonely. Also, more <laughs> importantly, Marco's like the bigwigs over at Marvel and DC or at Disney and Warner, and he's like, how do we break into the Chinese market? How do we break into the I Chinese know. market? He smells the blood. Yeah. How do we become the number one comic book <laughs> podcast in China? We need to, man. How do, how, we're, we're, we're about 15 years Can too we- late, but... We can make, can we, we target that. India instead? They have almost as many people and far less human rights violations. Nah, Chinese <laughs> all, right, all right, all right, Not all right. Not this week. <laughs> Phil? Um, if you want to find me on social media, find me at Cyborg Bebop. Uh, looking through our registered trademark submissions, it does look like Marco's filed number one podcast in Shanghai. Number one, so Lombax number 10. That's, that's our future. <laughs> Um, and please uh, tweet at me about HBO's Watchmen. Uh, I've been watching every episode. I'm really up to oh, date really? on it. What? I'm a huge fan. Nah, he's trolling. He's being an asshole. It's so good. I love um, I love Ozzy Mandias in it, and the comedian. They're so good. Uh, so just check it out. I hate. I hate you. I got hype for It's not no even reason. funny. <laughs> As for me. Going. You can uh, find me on Twitter and Instagram only at Sean Soapbox. Hit me up to talk about why Phil sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Jean Grey because she's on my mind and I'm very sad that uh, Midtown Comics ran out of the cover of X-Force number three in which oh, she was no. the only character on it. So I am sad. Sorry, bud. With that, 
We're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week. Somebody send Sean that cover. Go find it in the summer. Yeah, go, go mail it. Sayonara. When will the Watchmen watch me? <laughs>